A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, we are beginning Era 2 by reading chapters prologue, or the prologue, I guess, through chapter 7 of The Alloy of Law by Brandon Sanderson. Mr. Branderson, we're back. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Crossland, you and I have so much goddamn stuff going on in our lives right now. Lots of things are changing. And if you want to hear about those changes, we just talked for like 25 minutes about all the shit that's going on in our lives. So you could shamelessly i'm going to plug our patreon again and you should follow us on patreon patreon.com slash words and whiskey and listen to the devil's cut because i think this one's a very very good insight into like the background of this show and all of our like current states of affairs yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't like call it a state of the union or anything like that but it did kind of have the tone of like (laughs) here's kind of our layout and plan for things including some highlights pj's engagement from that today hmm. is our first episode discussing the congratulations by the way i'm not actually just going to roll you. over that <laughs> no, you're good <laughs> so but congratulations on your engagement of course cheers and everybody send pj well wishes i'm gonna make you post something on instagram so you're gonna have to do that now social pressure because it's recorded mm. social, media <laughs> social media pressure social media pressure a a a um cool so with that today is our first episode <laughs> discussing the alloy of law by brandon sanderson and we are going to chat about the prologue through chapter seven but before you do that pj it's been like two weeks since we recorded one of these what mm-hmm. are you drinking I had no idea what I wanted to drink today when I came into this. Usually I like to sort of theme it off of something that was consumed in the book, at least during one of the early episodes of the show. And, uh, you know, that didn't really happen this time. There was tea. I could have done something with tea. There's turmeric. I do feel like I fucked up. I do feel like now that you said that, I kind of fucked up because... Wax does take Alimantic whiskey shots. Oh, he does. Shit. Yeah. Shit. I took a shot of rye earlier, but my, my cocktail has turmeric, which is a spice adjacent to tea. I'm calling it. Uh, It's not. I don't know. It's yellow. The color of the book is yellow. Like, look how well that matches. That's as close as I have to a theme. But I have what's called a glow sour out of Dave Arnold's book, Liquid Intelligence. So this is two ounces of gin infused with turmeric. And in that book, he infuses it using nitrogen canisters. I didn't Mm -hmm. have that. So I just put it in a mason jar and shook the shit out of it for a long time and then put it through a coffee filter. It, I don't know if it's the same worked pretty well. Turned my drink bright yellow. So two ounces of gin infused with turmeric, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice and two dashes of orange bitters all shaken and served into a coupe glass. So 
nice. Crossland has a picture of it. It is bright, bright yellow. <laughs> it is so goddamn yellow. Very, very heavy in all of the flavors in a really jarring but delicious way. Like it, it is <laughs> lime and turmeric. And that's basically what it tastes like. But I, I, I didn't expect it to taste as good as it does. It's got a hint of like tang. And I don't hmm. know why, because it shouldn't other than the color. And maybe it's just huh. like my like my mind expecting Tang when I see this neon yeah. yellow drink in front of me. But I get that feeling out of it for some goddamn reason. I don't I don't understand it. Maybe it's citrus lime. But yeah, yeah. Back half beer. I have Portage Brewing Company's year five. So this is an anniversary triple IPA with Strata. Sabro Cryo, Citra, and Citra Cryo hops. Portage is a brewery out of Walker, Minnesota that a couple of years ago burned to the ground. And they, in an amazing fashion, have come back full force. This beer is, I say this with all honesty, one of the best IPAs I've had, period. It is wow. very, very, very good. It's very good. I'm- so exceedingly jealous i'm going to pick up another four pack of it before it's all gone so anyway that's me what are you drinking crossland you know you actually called me right before the show asking you know kind of what we were thinking and things like that and we kind of worked through the solution my parents went up to charlotte this weekend and bought some they, they kind of went to like a, a local fair thing and they bought some uh, syrups a variety of syrups and we're like, hey, you know, whatever, try these. And a lot of them are, you know, fairly kind of classic. I would call them, generally speaking, like a little bit more elevated version of your average cocktail syrup that you or I might make at home, you know, where it's very pretty much straightforward. These are using even some more refined blends of spices and are getting a little bit more specific and granular, more than like a ginger syrup being really just, you know, boiled blended ginger, nut bag, you know, the whole whole nine yards. Anyway. Point being, without ranting too much, they got me these five different syrups, and I wanted to do something with one of them, and I decided on the peach rosemary syrup. As you and I talked about it, we were going to make an improved whiskey cocktail with it, basically removing the absinthe, because that would cut through the profile a little bit too much. Peach is a very soft flavor, didn't make sense. And as I began to pour my ingredients into my vessel, I quickly substituted whiskey for tequila so this is my improved whiskey tequila cocktail which is two ounces of tequila half an ounce of peach rosemary syrup quarter ounce of maraschino and a dash of angostura bitters which is more than enough you don't want to overwhelm the profile i really love it it's this is delicious i expected it to be good you know a lot of those substitutions that we were we had kind of talked about and making sure that we didn't blow out the profile i was like tequila change might be weird but i didn't want it, the peach to go up against like a really aggressive bourbon because i wasn't sure how well it would hold up and i was like fuck it I, and i didn't want it to be vodka because you know plain plain palate is good but then really all you're getting is the syrup for the most part so tequila tequila made the vessel and casamigos tequila already has an almost interesting like bubble gummy taste to it like a little bit so the peach really kind of comes through in a fantastic way and it's delicious the only thing i would change is because it's a stirred cocktail i would add a sprig of rosemary when stirring and then remove it or like garnish in post with one but that's it that's all i would do it's the only change i would make nice yeah just to bolden that rosemary flavor a little bit Mm. i could see Mm. some almost like caramelized sugar 
getting added to that too, like like torched brown sugar or something. I don't know. You definitely could. I mean, the improved whiskey cocktail is typically made with a sugar cube. I mean, obviously, we're wanting to highlight the syrup here, but you could absolutely, maybe in the place of the maraschino, within reason, because the maraschino adds a little bit of sweet backbone to it, too, um, but complexity. So I don't know. I don't know. I honestly, I think that you're right. You're on to something with the idea of adding the brown sugar. But I almost would want to maybe do that, like brown sugar, I should say, not brown sugar. almost would want to do that in, like, a slightly different mixture. I don't know that I would do this precise cocktail, but I would use the syrups. I can I can see the flavors, and I can imagine it, and I can already taste it. Like, it's there. Like, your idea is there. I just don't know. I don't know which direction to pull it in. Uh, yeah. Following that up, I'm having a special release brew from Wilmington Brewing. Uh, called pandemonium it has a bunch of pandas dancing around the bottom of the can which is great it is a triple dry hopped hazy imperial ipa galaxy vic secret and i haven't tried it yet but oh oh she fine that that's good <laughs> fuck that's like perfect. a perfect palette you wouldn't expect that to be it's probably just because of the blend of hops and the dry hopping process in general but like you wouldn't expect it to only be dry hops if that makes sense Mm-hmm. awesome so before we talk about the chapters pj how'd you feel about this week's reading and switching it up into mistborn era 2 there is so much i absolutely love about era 2 over era 1 the abilities are amazing the the settings amazing like almost entirely i love i love this book more than the entire first trilogy already Somehow, because wow. I really like I really, really liked the first trilogy. And I think that was kind of apparent in our, in our coverage. My one hesitation on that is it feels less hard as far as like, here I go again. As far as rules go, it, it feels like the abilities are a little bit softer in definition. And I don't doubt that there are rules behind them. But. It just it feels like a lot of the abilities that we've been exposed to operate in a much less grounded way. Interesting. Okay, so here's here's where I I differ with that opinion a bit. Of course, I've read the whole fucking thing, so like you have to take what I say with a little bit of a grain of salt. But Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of growth that happens for Brandon as a writer between the end of Era One. And him beginning era two. So, okay. So in between books here, Brandon Sanderson published the gathering of storm, which is the first of his three wheel of time books to wrap up the series for Robert Jordan. And then he published a year later, the towers of midnight, which was the second one. So it's two, two massive books with a ton of pressure on them and a ton of research that had to be done and switching worlds and switching ideas and styles and thinking about writing in a very different fashion, entering his, one of his favorite worlds. Right. And then In 2013, he finishes up A Memory of Light. Between then, he publishes The Way of Kings, the first book in the Stormlight Archive, and this book, in addition to a couple of other books, Warbreaker as well, all of which I think changed Brandon Sanderson's writing approach from one that was so reliant upon exposition to explain things through a character's head and like really heavy info dumps that we kind of just get used to inside of Mistborn Era 1 as opposed to 
really a shift from telling to showing as we kind of got into like the details in the last book and we had talked about it a lot like a lot of hemallergy is explained through the logbook which is purely exposition it is it is not plot driven writing and so it is very we're reliant upon that text basically in order to even understand some of the things because the text itself doesn't show through action or explain through action how things work effectively and so i think he learned across the course of those books how to write magic differently and better while still adhering to his own magic rules okay that's the gist and i think that it's easy enough to explain that he wrote one two three four hard adult books between point a and point b as like a point to being like that's a lot of shit that he wrote like almost a million words between between series actually i think it's more than a million words yeah the the story definitely has a a driving force to it that mm-hmm. we didn't quite have in Mistborn Era One. Can't can't argue with that. I'm yeah yeah. But I, think, I believe I think you. That's a, I know I know I we're talking why. about like two different things though. Well, no, but I think that that's I your your point on not being as rules heavy is because you realize that he has to keep the action going and that the action can show the rules. And mm-hmm. it's it's a matter of people trusting him enough that the rules are going to come or that they'll happen or that you'll occur and you'll get situations and working it out. Like that's I don't mean to sound so condescending to era one, but like that's how writing works most of the time with most people. That's how most mm-hmm. authors function is they aren't going to just sit and hand you like a pre-read book or like a read-along guidebook to like understand something as opposed to exposing you to it naturally, which is kind of what Brandon did in the original Mistborn era. I like the logbooks for some of what they do, but it is so clear when you get to this book and the Stormlight Archive and everything else that while great a great story a great plot this is why as we talked about in the wrap-ups i had more issues than expected because like that had fallen out of my mind because of all of the good sanderson writing that i had read and it really reared its ugly head when i went back to at the very least the last two books Uh, not the last Mm -hmm. two books the last book for me but yeah i understand what you're saying that you think the rules are really are whiny limey not defined but they they will be. I'm. I believe. I believe that. Yeah. I totally believe that. Yeah. That's just how they come across right away. And like you gotta, you gotta understand. I'm coming from that very well defined space to something entirely less mm-hmm. defined with new abilities. Oh yeah. So right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not. By no means am I am I trying to talk down, but I do want to at the very least arm us to be successful to talk about the rest of this, because I think it's from here on out. It's better. It's different and better. Um, All right. So I'm I'm very stoked to talk about the rest of these. And, you know, we're we're in a new world. We're in a Western world. Yeah. So I'm so in. I'm so so psyched. I'm so in on this. I love this setting so much. So with that, let's get into our breakdown here so that we can talk about this a little bit more. Let's start with the prologue. We open up this week to a much different world. And what I think is Brandon's strongest openings that we've read so far between Elantris and the three other books, I think that this is the strongest punch that he sets us up with. 
it sets the stage for a new sort of story, a, a kind of magical Western. And this opening really eloquently throws us back into the world of Scadrial while also updating some of the things and reminding us quickly without ever becoming wordy about the rules of the world, kind of like we were saying before. I think it's brilliantly executed. It shows if we looked at like Mistborn, I don't I don't want to spend too much time comparing the era so much, but you look to like the scenes that we talked about in the beginning of the novels when he was introducing the magic system and how it would take like 50 pages or like a battle of 10 pages for him to go through each of the magic from each Mistborn so that he would reset the status quo in your head of all of the abilities inside of those scenes. And here he does in a couple of lines while setting the settings brilliantly without wasting our time and reiterating things. I hear you. I, I loved those descriptions. <laughs> I really <No>. did. <laughs> I really loved them. Boo this man. <laughs> <laughs> but we're we're operating in the same universe, so we don't need them here. It's this is this is like an elevated execution of that. The fact I don't that he doesn't need have to write out here. a paragraph. <laughs> but what what I'm saying is like regardless of like our understanding, he explains the same ability in a sentence. Like he has just become a much more capable, denser writer. He explains how the lines flare out from the center and the blue lines are pulled and then quickly explains how he pushes against things and then also explains a brand new ability in the form of a steel bubble. You know, like he does all of these things just lightning fast. Yeah, that's true. You're right. You're right. I don't know. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. All I'm saying is I really liked those long drawn out very detailed, granular descriptions of things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can like both. You are allowed to like what you like, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna boohoo you too much, but at the same it's time. It's okay to be wrong oh in my the God. immortal words of Crossland. <laughs> I you know, I would say that try to <laughs> I try very hard to not <laughs> I'm trying harder, I should say. <laughs> To not allow people to like things. <laughs> Do you remember me drooling over those like long sections of that book? <laughs> I do. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm not talking about the combat specifically, but I'm talking about the intros that we talked about being like yeah. chunky and really just used to like reiterate and like redo this. Right. This mm -hmm. is just an example of how redoing that can be done in a simple flourish rather than, you know, meticulously yeah. to give us all 16 powers in a single scene. You know, mm -hmm. not really, but you get yeah. the gist of what I'm my hyperbole. I get it. I get it. It's fine. What do you think about the world? <laughs> the world is awesome. Like yeah. the world makes a ton of sense for these powers. This Western sort of feel. It is exactly, exactly what I would imagine a playground for these pl powers to like be within. Like mm -hmm. it, it's it's fast paced. It's gritty. It's varied, and it, it's just a blast so far. A blast in multiple ways. Mm hmm. Shotgun blasts a plenty. <laughs> that was the sound of finger guns going off, folks. If your finger guns don't make noises, they aren't real. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and with that Western spirit, though, comes something new thrown into the mix. 
guns. Bullets whizzing by, we find out that our first POV character, Waxillium Ladrian, wielding a Starion, takes out a guard and does so all while burning steel. Brandison highlights a couple of things here between the ability to create a steel bubble, like we were talking about, and using specific metal bullets and casings to help increase his capabilities as a wielder of steel, and how almost X-ray vision-like the steel lines can be in these moments. Uh, What do you think about this? So this... For me, my initial reaction to this was much like what you were talking about before in that this is a reiteration of different rules, but with a twist and with a flourish. So like we we saw the x-ray kind of idea of steel and iron in era one, but it definitely took a little bit more descripting or describing in order to get that imagery to come through. Where does he use X-ray as a term in this book? I don't think so. No. No? Okay. I don't know. Somehow this fresh description of the same ability feels familiar, but different enough that it it matches the setting and it's, it just feels fresh and Mm -hmm. good. Yeah. I, I think that I was thinking about this while you were talking a little bit and kind of trying to clarify the line a little bit clearer even to what we were saying a little bit before that I think we get this is kind of the highlight of what I'm saying, right? One of the biggest things that I think Arrow 1 did is it pointed out how things were being done, not – Alamancy feels in Wax's hands, in Branderson's hands through Wax, feels like a tool that he's using, that he's like – that he's wielding to its most efficiency. And we see it more as a tool rather than I feel like the way that it was described in Mistborn was more like a reason that things got done. If that makes sense. Like this is, this is how this all works. This is why this coin flies this direction because I push on it with steel. It does this. So because of X, Y happens. And a lot of it was like reaction writing in that way where it's like okay this happens burns and then this happens versus here it's like okay i've got to i've got to drop my bullet and then i've got to push against it so that i can jet up into the air but you don't get the burns iron so then he pushes against the bullet and it hits the ground and reflects his weight up into the air all the time you do get it the first time so that you understand but almost never again does he retread those descriptions so i can't i i I want more of it, though. I do. I do love the way that he writes those things because it's so technical and it's so very clearly like instant by instant thought out. And there is meticulousness across the entire thing. This is just as thought out. It's just not as wordy. Like there's eloquence in being able to describe something simply. Right. Yeah. Like you and I always aim to get these episodes shorter, but pack pack the same punch, right? Like that's our goal is to shrink things to make it better and more punchy. And I don't think that it's any different when you think about writing. Like it's the it's the same idea. And the fact that he manages to tell, you know, we're not we're not anywhere near the end of the book yet. But like sixty thousand words compared to two hundred twenty thousand words or two hundred forty thousand words. And you know, we're a third away, third of the way through the book at this point, basically a full part. It feels like he's told twice the story in some capacities. That's totally true. I I will entirely believe you, like agree with you on that. All I'm saying is that even though the end result is the same, 
I got a ton of enjoyment off of seeing mm-hmm. that instant by instant replay of how things happened throughout that moment. Yeah. And I, I'm not, by the way, I'm not completely talking down about this. I'm saying that I think that this is a net improvement and it feeds over into a lot of the other things mm-hmm. because Mistborn is already so fleshed out. It really doesn't need all of that description all the time. That's the other thing is more confidence in readers and understanding yeah. that people can go to a wiki now to like look up information if they need to and can like find resources and other ways to help themselves out and understand things. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of a new newfangled thing that wasn't really like we were saying when we were talking about publishing before. You know, this was published in 2013. The first book that we read in the series was 2007. So big gaps there. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of technology and time, that's us before high school and us after high school. So, yep. In terms of timing. There we go. Oh, officially dated ourselves on the show. Before. But I, yeah, it's true. It's true. We have. Uh, I turn I, 28 I tomorrow. You do turn 28 tomorrow. Congrats. You've finally caught up to me again. We'll do this rat race again next year. <laughs> <laughs> do it every year. But I, I do I'll love. Catch up one I time. love wax. Right. Like. <laughs> Wax is so great. Wax is frantically hunting around the room and he hears a loud thump of a body of a man above him, you know, as he's flipped out this the shell and like used it. Also, can I say, while we've traded some of the meticulous explainers behind Alamancy away, him explaining why the bullets were different in his guns was super cool. Like the reason that the casings were changed so that it would actually be possible to shove something at a reasonable speed and or be able to like further influence a bullet using steel and so having it be a heavier bullet so you could push it and do more with it even mm-hmm. if it's propelled slower. Like that's cool. That is cool. That's some cool science. That's like some real sciencey shit in a different yeah, way. That's that's pretty fucking dope. <laughs> it's pretty fucking dope. It's pretty sweet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, getting back to it. You know, he's frantically hunting from room to room to room, and the man that is seemingly hunting him around thuds to the ground, and we're introduced to Lessie. As we know, <laughs> Lessie is not long for this world. We'll get back to her <laughs> in a minute, though. I love the attention that's paid here, though, to the letter that's in Wax's pocket. It's him, like, ignoring this legacy clearly from the beginning and ignoring what he was born with so that he could become something else of his own accord. I I just kind of wanted to pick your brain on the thoughts here as this prologue sets up a lot of the thematic things that we saw over the course of the first third here and really kind of kicks us off. What would you make of the, the letter, as it were? So, I mean, that letter, that of his sort of – it's calling calling his lineage home to, like, take mm-hmm. care of this estate, essentially. And – that is a like the fact that he's just kind of ignoring it and it's just kind of stuffed in his pocket is a personality trait that sticks through the rest of the story so far. And it gives Wax this really great consistency as a character of somebody who doesn't like he knows what he wants and he will he will follow through with like honor and maybe honor is not the right term, but with responsibility but he's still going to primarily focus on what he thinks is right. So, I mean, it's how, how would you put this in? Like we like to put D and D alignment into our characters historically. I think this puts him in, in like lawful neutral kind of. I think he's, I think he's pretty lawful or good, n- right? Like he's pretty unambiguously a good neutral guy. Who, good. 
Neutral good. Yeah. 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 Neutral means, good makes more lawful, sense. But yeah. He follows um, a code, but that code isn't necessarily the law. It bends, you know, it's, it bends. yeah. I, I would go so far as to step back a second and say that it's almost like he's more thinking about D&D again, thinking about backgrounds, right? Like he is a reluctant noble of sorts. He is a, mm-hmm. he was born into wealth, but doesn't really, didn't really want it and kind of rejected it. And so that makes for a very interesting case that we're going to talk about for the rest of the week as he reapproaches it because he feels a deep responsibility still to all of the people that are in yeah. the employ and to legacy at large. Yeah. He doesn't reject it to the point where he ignores that letter, for example. No. Right. Yeah. So reluctant makes makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just like I like the idea of the reluctant reluctant nobles to me are some of the coolest characters we've talked a little bit about like offline we've talked a little bit about critical role right like part of the joy of dorian storm's character is that he is like a reluctant noble but Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that's not that's not very spoilery at all so no one no it's not not in the slightest (laughs) yeah no all right I like the use of rust and ruined use here as a simple swear in place of Lord Ruler as well as harmony and shows us that we haven't moved too far away from our origin point that religion still plays like this large focus in this story and kind of the the overall you know like the idea of rust and ruin feels very directly attached to you know the idea of harmony at some point along the line um Mm. and you know i guess we haven't heard like by preservations beams or something like that but you know (laughs) preservations jams i don't know what do you want from me (laughs) <laughs> i mean like harmony is so clearly sazed throughout this entire section like it, it's hard to i know it's not confirmed so you won't tell me but it feels super obvious that this is says that they're talking about unless it's Michelle talking about harmony. harmony twice in the episode so like I, we we yeah we we fucking confirmed it on accident but like it's okay. not it's not crazy to I mean no it's it, it, it seems is barely obvious. a leap it is barely yeah. a leap yeah unless it's the harmony from red rising it is not that harmony unfortunately okay because that would be a wild crossover Here's big man <laughs> but is rust always used as a proper noun because I think it's always at the beginning of a sentence so it's always capitalized but I don't know if it's just the alliteration and it's talking about ruin capitalized also always but i don't know if rust is supposed to be a proper noun or if it's just the beginning of the saying i think it's the beginning of the saying and then it's often capitalized as such in a similar way that like jesus christ is a swear would be even though it's like proper noun like it's a proper noun front to back i feel like it's it creates some parallelism. It's likely an editing choice more than anything else. I don't know if it ever comes up in a situation where it's not the beginning of a sentence. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. But that's I'm, neither I'm here nor there. searching through the whole text just to see here. So, okay, there is an instance where it is capitalized outside of okay. outside of being the beginning of a sentence. But inside of this book, that only happens one time. <laughs> It's like every other time it's the front of the sentence. That's very funny to me, but useful to know. Useful to know. Is that in this section? No, not at all. Not at all. Cool. (laughs) I don't. So my my point was less that it 
this is very clearly meant to be a swear and yeah. you know it's not like something that you can investigate or anything like that or i i don't think that there's i don't capitalize look fuck when i talk <laughs> or I when i write fuck when i talk yeah i mean yeah. i do in in inflection but anyway like it's neither here nor there i was just like is there a rust character that we're meant to mm-hmm. like follow up on that's another kind Fair. of nefarious deal but it seems more alliteration and emphasis than anything else. I think so. I think that's what they're leaning into more than anything else. I would agree. Yeah. I just like, I, I appreciate the kind of idea. I and mean, like I said, preservations jams or something like that. Preservations. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to say preserves because that's just stupid, but you know. That's hilarious. Yeah. Preservations jellies. <laughs> preservations jellies. Yeah. By preservations jellies, you will leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Jellies <laughs> feels like it has so many contexts to it here that I don't even know where to go. <laughs> mm. All right. All right. So after a brief interlude, checking out our friends of whom over in Hill Reaper, of whom are do- now doing fuck. Can I talk? I, I, the point being, if you're listening to this, we drank a little bit on the in-between because we were watching Hill Reaper's new live stream behind the veil that they do every other Monday with their new episode releases. Be sure to go check it out. They do great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was it was great. I have a feeling um, we're going to hang out in there quite a bit, probably. Mayhaps. Mayhaps we will, you know, as as it goes. That said, as mentioned, I finished my cocktail and made an old fashioned to to back it up with uh, with one of these syrups. And it's it's pretty tasty. Nice. I finished my cocktail and grabbed another beer for when I inevitably finish this one. Oh, I also grabbed another beer. We're not, I'm not even talking about the other beer that I grabbed. This one's called Dance Juice by Fanta Flora. Which I've is... got Swing Juice. <laughs> oh, oh, no way. That's so funny. But it's like <laughs> dance, like the literal dance steps. That's funny because yours looks like an electronic, like an EDM I, dance. It's a golf ball. Oh, it's a golf ball? Oh, it is a golf ball. Okay. I was just yeah. seeing like the, it almost looked like sound waves bouncing off the edges because of the light and everything else. No, um, it's a golf ball with a neon splatter. Hmm. Okay. Nice. This is an unfiltered double IPA fermented with local peaches and dry hopped with El Dorado, Mosaic, Motica, and Sabro Cryo hops. All right, getting back to it here. We learn a bit more about who they're hunting. Bloody Tan, a serial killer of whom has been, as we find out, collecting these mummified corpses as trophies of his well-won spoils. He makes for a very haunting villain to start off the story, and one I think that is even... Dare I say it, a better villain than anyone else inside of the other pages previously, inside of a fucking quarter of a second, because scene setting is real. Anyway, okay, clearly exposing us to the fact that out in the roughs, there's some intense shit going on. Yeah, it's good to remember that, I think, going forward within this section, because we, we get this exposure to the horrors of the of the roughs. But then we're in Ellendale and we get these comments conflating the number of lawmen to the safety of the given citizens within the roughs. And like, it's definitely a matter of looking at statistics versus looking at like how things actually are where they're at. And you, this is a very good grounding measure to understanding what life is like out there and the dangers that you face as opposed to just the mundane life in the city and even how small 
relatively dangerous can be equated to something as horrible as something out there without totally understanding where they're coming from. Does that make sense? Am I yeah, floundering like the, a little bit need, in my description? No, no, no. I, I understand where you're going for. So like the need of lawmen in those situations are very different than one another. Like the, the need for lawmen in Ellendale is for predominantly petty crimes, wherein there's something more extreme about what's necessary out in the roughs. Yeah. And crowd right. control and whatever, yeah. whatever else you want to make of it. But the idea that you have twice the number of lawmen per, per capita essentially means mm-hmm. that it's safer is a complete fabrication of the truth of things. But that gets, that comes up later, but this is the perfect time to bring it up. I think because this is an example and this is our grounding in that sense of what it's actually like out there or what it can be like out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It is. It does. It sets, it begins to set what we assume is maybe a floor when in reality it might be a ceiling. Like it, it, it tries to establish a range for us to understand crime. And we get, we get that exposited upon further deeper in the story, right? We get a deeper Mm -hmm. understanding of to the extent that these things are happening. So it does, it grounds us a little bit in a horrifyingly tense way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because Bloody Tan, like walking through Bloody Tan's lair, despite the prologue being very short, is pretty fantastically written little segment again. Like I said, this is definitely the best start to any of the books that we've read so far as far as a first chapter goes. But it's it's truly haunting. It is. Yeah, sure. The prologue ends with a very strong moment here that I want to talk about. Pulling a familiar trick, something goes tragically wrong. And I'm going to read this to the best of my ability, of course. Uh, Wax fired. In that instant, Tan yanked Lessie right. The shot broke the air, echoing against clay bricks. Lessie's head jerked back as Wax's bullet took her just above the right eye. Blood sprayed against the clay wall behind her. She crumpled. Wax stood frozen, horrified. No, that isn't the way. It can't. The best performances, Tan said, smiling down and looking at Lessie's figure, are those that can only be performed once. Wax shot him in the head. And just as soon as she's introduced, Lessie is out of the story and Wax is immediately traumatized before we even really get onto the pages here. Proper. The more I've read through this, the more it seems to me that Bloody Tan was a scene. Maybe with very, very little very little amounts of alamancy or not alamancy of uh to use but that seemed like a move that was very much intentional and not by chance so no and i i <laughs> only mean that in and i i only mean this in the strictest sense the only way that the ending for the hero of ages works is if all of the atm was consumed because he does not have a body to pull power from and so Sears don't exist because ATM doesn't exist unless Harmony creates it and populates it. Some good to know. So that's that's more a clarification than anything else, because that's the way the story at the very end paints it, because there isn't any more ATM. It isn't regrowing because ruin doesn't exist in the same way anymore. OK, yeah, that's fair. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. OK, I don't yep. know. There goes my theory on it, though. So I know. So now you got to pitch something else. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't it seem like so well planned, though? 
like almost too well planned and almost too well executed i mean perhaps you know and i i don't want to speak necessarily like speculation is is good in these cases right like I think it could have been well planned. I think that as we find out later, Wax is relatively well known from out in the roughs, mm-hmm. as we learn. Like it, he's a case study to some degree of of a lawman. So it's not. I don't think it's so far of a stretch to say that like his story spreads, and that you know, especially among a criminal element, it could be possible that that story would spread as well. Right. Um, but we also know. Yeah. Yep. You're right. Sometimes I hate it when you say that in this okay. context. We know um, we know that from from the book's context, most of the specifics are lost because the person that they're interaction acting with dies. So there's not a lot of like witnesses to their actual like operation. They know the outcome. They know the people that go up against them and that die and how they go about maybe the planning phase, but they don't know the like actual interaction with them. So to know how he shoots isn't necessarily something that's going to be well known because there's not yeah. there's not witnesses explicitly. Uh, yeah, provided that the trick has been pulled enough. I, I do agree with you. I before even getting to that point, I did want to posit that it is possible. Well, I discounted the seer idea. It is possible that he can burn Electrum and he could see himself getting shot and could have dodged um, fair by all means. So I didn't want to. I was going down on the seer thing because of ATM specifically, but I think Electrum is also possible. There's Electrum. There. What does Mal ATM do again? Well, Mal ATM is a is an alloy of ATM. So I know, but when, it still existed, and there could be stores of it. Well, it's still ATM though, and that's important to it. Yeah. Not if it was created before. No, it, it abides by that same rule. What same rule? That's. Yep. So like. So they couldn't have just turned it all into malatium and been fine. Correct. Yep. That's been clarified. You malatium would still be Rune's body. Okay. Or at least part Rune's I know, body. I know you had native. written that as something to ask for clarification on. I don't know if that was new information that you gained or what, but. It feels very clear given kind of the way that the rest of the like that's not the explanation here uh i'll, I'll just like go ahead like it, it this is <laughs> okay, this is part fine. of the reason that i don't that it, it can make this story very hard is because it does feel like you have scientific puzzle pieces almost that like to talk about it to question it and to have conversations about it is either go act like an idiot for you know, 36 weeks until we get to the end of something or <laughs> and then be like, yeah, no, I knew I just couldn't fucking it's different when it's like for some for whatever reason, it, it feels very different when it's character drama or when it's something factual that feels like a basis for something. So Malatium wouldn't wouldn't do it anyway, regardless. Like, I think we can debunk this just on the general idea, either who another person was in the past or who they could have been if they made different choices. It's another person. So you'd be seeing someone else. Okay. Gotcha. By burning Malatium. You would also likely have to be similar. Gold you only see. Yeah. Because this is a mixing of gold and ATM. You see who you could have been in the past had you made different choices. Okay. And see who someone else could have been. Uh, No. Just you. Malatium lets you see other people. I mean. So what did Vin burn when she saw the Lord Ruler? That was Malatium. It was the 11th battle. 
Oh, so she burned yep. it so she could see someone else's gold shadow, basically. Right. If that makes sense. Yep. Yep. yep so it's yep. like she's seeing what gold burning. The For Lord some reason, I thought seen. she was burning gold when she saw that. No, no. She yep. burns gold on herself in order to make out some details. Yeah. Cool. Rules. Funky <laughs> rules. But Lessie's dead. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Did you have anything on, on Lessie? <laughs> I thoughts? mean, she has a whole lot of impact later. <laughs> yeah. This is... But we so, really don't know her. <laughs> like, I, Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. It, it's tough It's tough for me to work this out, but in, in my own writing, I've often thought about... So it's a colloquialism to some degree to introduce a term here, fridging, right? Fridging is the idea of introducing a female character and then killing them almost immediately to derive an emotional impact for a man to then go on through their story. That emotion is entirely derived from the constant reminders of it throughout the rest of the story. Like it, it sure. immediately, not really because we don't know anyone. Fair point. And that's yeah. also why fridging is ineffective because you have to build up to like know someone in order to put them like put them, kill them. All right, cool. With that, we go into chapter one. We, as quickly as we start to sit down our roots in the Western element, we jump forward five months and find Wax now in the city of Ellendale, seemingly having answered the call of the letter from the prologue and referred to as Lord Waxilium and Ladrian, of which we know he doesn't particularly appreciate sort of the way that he's he's referred to. Of course, something we haven't mentioned, the last name Ladrian is Breeze, and that means he's a descendant of Breeze. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fucking. I can only assume Alrahan still <laughs> kicking around in the in the old in the old gene pool, ancestry tree. Yeah. Man, I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you. Uh, L- <laughs> Wax seeks escape and comfort, and he steps out onto the balcony of the city to breathe again and walks outside and feels the faint wetness of the mists on his face. He stares out of the metropolis and feels out of place here as the head of this house in this moment. So, a couple things. First of all, I can't quite place my finger on why, but this scene feels so perfectly mistborn. While still feeling wholly unique, like just compared to the first era, I I don't know. It like it still feels. It does a great job of feeling like we're in the same universe, but also starting a new story. And it's it's exactly what we're doing, but this encapsulated that perfectly for me. That said, the mists have never been described as having any sort of moisture to them before. So is this something new? Is it just fog? Is it foggy and they have stories of the mists and that's why they're not super consistent? Is it that Brandon got better at describing things and the way that things touch skin and the way that, you know, you feel feelings? Having moisture would require it to interact with light and interacting with light would make it impossible to see through even with tin. The fact that it doesn't have moisture is the reason why tin works. Yes. (laughs) And now it's wet. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm okay cool no I, I i don't mean this in like a in any kind of this is one of those things that feels feels very not even like it's it's hard to answer because there's some spoiler behind the the window right if that makes sense it's one of those things where to me this feels like growing as a writer more than it does you know kind of anything else and not that like imagine <laughs> 
<laughs> if you will, a mistborn in which all of the mists also made you very damp <laughs> gently as you walked through them. <laughs> and your mist cloak was just drenched and you were very wet <laughs> all of the time. And, like you would land and instead of being like light and feathery, you'd be like plop. Yeah, like a wet, a wet plop sound every time you landed anywhere. <laughs> the misco tails would not be stealthy. Actually, they would be bad. Yeah, as they clapped against each other in the wind. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. It does maybe in that realm point, but this also, again, to me, shows that Brandon Crew is a writer because he can describe a feeling. Yeah, but that texture. feeling goes against the entire point. <laughs> a texture, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, de- I, this is what I'm saying. Does it, though? Does it actually go against it? Does it? That's a, that's a good point. question. Yeah. 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 To, well, I mean, I don't think it. Yeah, that's that's the real question at the heart of what you were asking is, does it go are, against? Are these the mists rules? actually the mist or is it just fog? Or yeah. Or is it? Yeah. Just something that's a simple, simple fog. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's that's the heart of the question. So I was trying to, like, go forward to go back to get back here. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I do agree with you, though. It does feel like perfectly mistborny. Like it feels it has this sort of I mean, I already used the word texture to describe it, but it does feel distinctly like just launching out into the into the fog, into the city feels very reminiscent of our experiences all the way back in the final empire. Mm hmm. We do get a bit of cheese, though, of course, because Brandon can't help himself in certain moments, as the names of the streets, mansions, promenades, and parkways seem to have all been named as nods to the old crew as they made it possible for this new world to exist. He stares out over the metropolis and says that it was designed by Harmony himself. There's lots of fingerprints of our godly boy lingering around in this new world. What would you make of kind of the the scene setting of our dear city of Ellendell? As it were. I mean, cheese is, cheese is absolutely correct. Yeah. And it's having season cheese, man. <laughs> it's terrible. It's, it's terrible cheese. Yeah. Do not eat much of it. You can yeah. handle it a little bit, but if you have yeah. too much, your body just preserves itself and then you can't die, which maybe that's right. okay. Like the man under the bridge, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Had too much spray cheese. It's good to see Sazed's hand every once in a while. Feels good. The name Harmony. I can only imagine. Like it seems so very sazed, quote unquote. Like it feels like something he would bestow upon himself. But at the same time, he is so true to himself that I could absolutely, absolutely believe somebody would look upon his story and then call him Harmony based on that. So I, I'd like to get some background on that, where that name came from. It It is interesting to make the move between a story that had elevated itself near the end of the first era to this really big, godly context, right? That it really, like, I don't think it actually jumped the shark or jumped the moon or anything like that, but it did stretch itself in a very cosmic sense. And then to be pulled back down to the ground again through through Axe's story I think is really well executed and I think it does leave a lot of these questions which now now that we've been teased with this sort of like godly existence and godly worlds you know you just you're clipping after the answers you're like dear god I know there's something else give me give me another hit of that Mm -hmm. which is something that I appreciate about the story yeah it's a great question does this originate from does this originate from Sazed or does this originate from nomenclature as people have created their colloquialisms 
over the last 300 years. Yeah. After contemplating what he should do for the better men to better mend, excuse me, the two parts of him, that of the roughs and that of what is expected of him as a house leader. Wax handles his starings, thinking about replacing them before launching out into the night and dropping into the coachman's yard, carefully floating his way down by storing his weight. Wax is something new to us. He is a twin born. We find out a couple of other things, of course. Uh, we've learned about fairings officially pretty early on. We also learned that Mistborn don't exist in the current state of the world as we collectively knew them. I am so here for this combination. And for this, this new set of abilities, not set, but combination, like the ability mm-hmm. to comp, how do I describe this? This new lexicon of combinations of abilities, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that would be the best way to describe it. It just feels really good <laughs> to be able to combine ferrochemical and alimantic abilities on a very limited scale like we see here because there's so much potential for different powers and different very unique and creative ways of using these abilities in conjunction with each other and that gets even more complicated when you introduce the fact that these abilities can affect other people and that they can pair off with one another like wax and wayne do going forward so you effectively have four abilities three that kind two that interact with it just it makes for complications that are still very very powerful but don't just lean on the i can do everything i'm superman mistborn capabilities Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's more dynamic i think than anything else even in brandon's own rules of of uh, magic restrictions are more interesting than the opposite and so this is a great example of when you pull it back it's actually more than it is because you have to think of creative ways to use it again we've gone back so many times to the D comparison here but part of the joy of like really playing D effectively is figuring out how to bend the rules of something as closely as it's described as you can and then like manipulating it so the dm's like yeah no i couldn't have imagined it being done that way until you said it i get it here you go here's your reward for doing that and that's kind Mm. of what this feels like in a lot of different ways is like naturally like a steel bubble isn't something that vin would have thought of because vin and i think this is well enough explained through context that we get through the idea of both savantism in the form of spook and then also the refinements that we get in the beginning of the final empire each of the mistings were the best people at their individual abilities possible and had refined it to such a point and vin while very good at all of them likely the best misborn ever especially since there aren't any more did not have the same level of mastery and so may not have even gotten to this point of experimentation because she had to deal with all of them and so many other things yeah yeah she's jack of all trades kind of you know master but kind of also the master of a lot of them (laughs) master of several yeah but she never got to the point of just just as a comparison point she never got quite to the point of like kelsier where in that original final empire combat he's using iron and steel so effectively that he's creating like a whirlwind of weapons as he's like pulled and like manipulated those metals and as he's jumping around like swirling metal bits around in the center to like really kind of hit people like a tornado almost is he ever described as having earrings no he does not have any piercings 
Okay. But yeah, I I mean, Twinborn, so fucking cool. This gets into an idea, too, that was just surface level explored inside of Era 1, which is the idea of compounding and using the combination of Ferrochemy and Ferrochemy and Allomancy together to like really create strong effects, which is super cool. I mean, the only real conversation that we had about compounding in the previous series was that of gold and the ability to prolong life indefinitely right. between Ferrochemy and Allomancy. And hemology. And that was, I mean, it, it talked about healing kind of, but it was more talking about combating aging, which when you boil it down is kind of the same thing, but. Yeah, he was also storing age, which is a little bit of a different component. So it was a combination because he had access to all of them in theory. He was able to compound a lot of things to make a lot more than even what any of our twin born can do happen. Mm hmm. In theory, the Lord Ruler was incredibly fucking powerful and definitely only defeated by the power of a god. Yep. The same power that he once held, which is just that fucks me up in the head a little bit. But <laughs> it's I like crazy. to as as I reflect on Mistborn, I like to kind of treat it like a I like to think it in like a more abstract context, like a mythology of sorts. And I try not to nitpick so much on the details because like, here's the myth. And now we've got like more things because that's kind of what mistborn era one is as we move into these additional eras at this point is it's like that's our founding myth and now we've got three more time frames that we're going to look at you know mm -hmm. so interesting from like a universe world perspective right do 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 i read that one i love the little notes here that we get throughout the chapter about wax the notes about all the combinations that we talked about about the survivor the mist coat instead of the mist cloak the lack of mythological mistborn in our present day story the ascendant warrior capitalized and how the genealogy has shifted over these decades and generations these centuries on top of that wax realizes that all the mistborn are missing out that all of them were totally missing out and that they should have been taking their metal flakes with whiskey baby boom <laughs> it's so clear he's chatting about this too how much more dynamic brandon's writing has gotten since the end of era one even in the midst of exposition you know you get these like nice flashy character moments like this comment about mistborn cheers by the way of course drinking to the whiskey but i fucking i had forgotten about that little bit mm, wax man every every time i reread this wax becomes one of my favorite characters probably in the eras but yeah damn he he's pretty great he's pretty cool like yeah like there's this sense that i'm i'm tempted to say but hear me out i guess the characters and the first books in general don't feel unrefined but in comparison this this section just blows it out of the water mm -hmm. and this is what you've been saying for the last hour <laughs> But yeah, like this, this is a better written book already. <laughs> right. Well, and it's, it's so tough because it's like when you're in it, Mistborn is great hooks. Era one has great hooks that like really get into you. And I think that our primary POV characters really get those hooks in really effectively. And they do bring us through the story to, I, I think, an engaging conclusion. I think it's I also think it's well, well constructed, but. You can still build a skeleton for a house and it might not be flashy or like what you like exactly. And I think that's what I find with Arrow One more or less is like it's it's got great bones, but I don't love the architecture. Fair. So that's it. 
I'd still like it. Like, again, that's comparing <laughs> it against some of my favorites. Like, that's that's trying to rank it, I guess, in things that I've read previously, not like what we've tried to do, especially in our analysis and approach, is keep, keep the comparison separate to the series. However, we're still in the fucking series, so all gloves are off. It's just a new era, baby. So... Our hero lands, of course, and quickly finds himself ducking and hiding amidst a firefight. He creates a steel bubble, basically lightly pushing in all directions using steel, preparing for a new blue line to crop up. Four different figures continue to shoot at him, and he appears, and when he hears a scream that freezes him, it reminds him of Lessie's blood splattered on the wall. Our boy seems to be dealing with a little bit of PTSD. All right, slow down. Fuck you. I'm amped about these characters. My boy. Fine. My boy. Yeah, I, I don't know if he's earned our boy yet. Like you, you can't just throw that. You can't throw that term out willy nilly. We gotta get. We gotta get. We gotta get more. We gotta get more. My boy, wax. <laughs> That's fair. That's a fair point. Oh man, mm, I yeah. do have a good feeling about him. He'll earn it. He'll get there. He'll. Yeah. He he does maybe need to do something. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Of course, but you have future sight. I do. I do have. I am effectively a seer for this series. I can kind of, you know, see that. I've got my infinite supply of ATM because I. Uh, you own the other books. That, yes, that was exactly what I was going to say. Not some weird shit about me being a Zerg queen and my back abdomen being the ATM mines of Hathsin attached via sinew and uh, gross fluid. Yeah, no, that definitely <laughs> wasn't the joke that I was going to make. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. <laughs> you know i was in the process of making it and then you cut me off and you had a better comment <laughs> but i had to have you hear it my god we are going into chapter two here baby in just a second we aren't even done with chapter baby. one uh, baby all right we moved to wax arriving at home in the ladrian Mas- mansion and we're introduced I heard myself say mansion and then try to come off real quickly in mansion. And there's no way that's coming out in the edit. We move to wax arriving at home in the Ladrian mansion and we're introduced. <laughs> I say mansion, right? Mansion. <laughs> we, we move to wax arriving at home in the Ladrian mansion and we're introduced to the house butler. Is it Tillamue? 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 I, I honestly I forget each time I look at this I forget the pronunciation the butler's uh, name Tillamu Till T I'm I'm not sure Tillamay Tillamay yeah Tillamay sounds right Tillamay sounds right all right folks dear God I'm gonna get it wrong for the rest of this episode it's gonna be Tillamay and the next episode I'm gonna come back with the audiobook pronunciation. And you cannot write me letters every episode. You cannot email me, send me tweets. You gotta give me just this one. I just need this one. I'll do it from here on out. Just this one time. Okay? Do nope. You- Fuck. Eviscerate him. Right. <laughs> and we were introduced to the house butler. Oh my god, Tilla May. And he paints a picture of the responsibilities that Wax has to the house. After all, he employs thousands, and his uncle's foolishness is what brought them here and potentially doomed them to begin with. To quote, and that is that. Wax, the law keeper, is gone. It was time to be Lord Waxilium Ladrian, 16th High Lord of the House Ladrian, rising in the fourth octant of Ellendale City. All right. 
That's something interesting. You mean the development of plot that we talked about with the butler? No, I mean the number 16. Oh. Which is fucking everywhere. Go ahead. No, it's it's good. I'm just gripe to pick. Finish your thought. No, that's fine. Does this count starting at Breeze as number one? Or does it count from like his previous noble lineage? That's a great question. I would assume so. I, I think that the way that I think about the way that you could get to 16 house lords is this pass off between like uncle cousin having people like over 300 years. 16 doesn't feel that absurd if you hand it it's, off at different times. You know, I mean, that's like one every 18 years or so. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds so little but i guess that assumes that like breeze age gaps age ranges people die improve all kinds of things like i think i agree with you in concept and you don't even need to say it i can see it in your fucking eyes so i'm gonna repeat this so everyone can understand pj's beady little eyes are looking at that 16 number and he's like that's a suspicious fucking number i see that number i see what you're what you're looking for oh octant so we're talking about eight so we're talking about a division of a factorial of six in some fashion or 16. Excuse me. What? Not six, it's not factorial <laughs> six. That's bullshit. I see you. I see what you're, I see what you're fucking doing. And I raise you a fuck man. I don't know. I'll take the fuck man. What? Uh, I don't yeah. know. It's <laughs> fine. Um, truth be told, I think that Brandon's penchant for latching into a number is borrowed from another famous author of whom latched into a number in the context of their own very popular, very famous series. And I'm not going to spoil who. Okay, that's fine. Because we're going to read it eventually. But I am very confident from out-of-text things that it is one of a couple of things that he's borrowed from said author. So, nod. Up until now, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with accepting that as a thing. But up until now, 16 has been explicitly, narratively, a very important number. Oh, yes, for sure. I'm not trying to say that it was not before or anything like that. But this just happens. It's the just trend of it being important. Yeah, especially. Yes, I, I can. Again, we talked about the, the sort of cheese whiz thing earlier, right? This is like he huffed the cheese whiz. He did a little bit. And <laughs> to be clear, I, I, you and I have discussed this a little bit off air, but maybe it makes sense to have this conversation before we go into ta- chapter two. Jesus, he this book was intended to just be a one off this when he wrote it. This was intended to be like a no, a longer novella, basically an, like a novel, a full book within an era like a time frame, and then he was going to move away from it to jump to the next era. However, he found that when he was writing it, he enjoyed the story so much and fans reacted so positively to it that he decided that he was going to write an entire unplanned story inside of this era, an entire unplanned story. So this story is book one and is standalone almost entirely. Not almost entirely. It's it's a standalone. It does connect with the next three books, but it like has its own plot. It has its own threads. It has everything kind of meant to be as self-contained as possible, which also means that some of this cheese, some of these like highlights were intended as like 
fun cheese. You know, it was meant to be kind of like a fun fucking thing. And then when he got to the end and people liked it, he was like, well, fuck, now I'm going to write more in it. And I set myself up for doom <laughs> with these cheesy <laughs> names and some shit. I mean, I'm not by any means. I don't no. think I'm treading on the whole thing, but like. That's it's, fine. It's an interesting premise from a setup perspective versus like a planned trilogy versus like an unplanned tetralogy. Is tetralogy the proper term? It is the word. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. I and looked that it up makes for sense. Red Rising's sake. Yeah. That makes total sense. The the number sixteen being here as a nod to that important number without actually meaning anything makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but. But maybe it means something. I don't know, PJ. I don't know. Does it not? Maybe it means something. Maybe I just spent a lot of time to disarm you, so you wouldn't think that it meant anything, but maybe it does. I don't know. It wouldn't be the first time you've done that. It wouldn't be the first time that I've done that. It wouldn't be the first episode that I've done inside of this book series. It wouldn't be the first time I've done that this month. Chapter two. Another six months passed (laughs) after he hangs up the guns, and we find our Lord... (laughs) That was really funny. (laughs) I really pulled that off. Keep playing. <laughs> Keep talking. After st- another six months pass, <laughs> after he hangs up the guns, we find our High Lord Waxillium gussing himself up for a meeting. Tillamay asks an interesting question about why Wax dressed like a noble when he was out in the roughs. And I think this goes to highlight how likely Wax holds his values and how he holds himself and how he thinks of himself. It's not that he has a... I thought about rewriting this question earlier. It's not that he he has he's got like this massive self-important ego, right? Like he's not so self-absorbed with image, but that he has an understanding of how to value himself and how that can also put people off to help give him leverage. Sort of his presentation versus his ego are two very different things. Yeah, I get what you're saying. But I feel like what you're describing as far as his presentation goes is his ego. You know, like I, I don't I don't see the actual distinction there. OK, let me let me clarify with with a different example to like bring it back. Right. If I dress up in clown makeup and show up to a podcast recording in cloud makeup. You would freak out. I would know that, that would freak you out because you're not used to that. Right. That does not speak to my ego and sort of my my self-worth and the way that i dress myself or the way that i do my attire it only is meant to evoke a reaction in you to do so and so out in the roughs i think wax is doing that because he knows that it will evoke a reaction and an intent not that he's dressing up because he feels the need to dress himself up he doesn't feel the need to look fancy that's not a part of his being. That's not a part of his character. He instead has done it historically because it is disarming to people, not because it feeds some sort of self-interest or ego beast side of But himself. disarming does people does... Like, that's, I'm trying that to is self-interest. Like self, I'm trying to clarify... Self-interest might not be the right word. Like self-esteem... Self-esteem is not even the right word. It is self-interest. You're not wrong. Disarming people is still feeding your own self-interest, but that's not generally the way that ego is fed into that equation. Ego is usually something that's meant to be self-affirming, right? Something that okay. boosts yourself up is the way that you improve your ego. He's not He's not doing... Wax doesn't care, for the most part, about the way that other people think about him. Outside of how he can use the way that people thinks, think about him to manipulate them. Like, he doesn't... He doesn't value dressing up. Outside of what it's worth 
to piss people off or to gain an advantage or an upper hand. I get it's not attached to his self-esteem, but it is attached to his, to his self, not his self-esteem, but to his self. And that that's what ego is. I get what or you're ego, saying and yeah, I can agree with it. Always. I, I, I completely agree with it, but to say that it's detached from his ego, I think is short-sighted a little bit. I think he's delusional about his own ego. I think Ooh, much like wait, his wait, own wait, paranoia. Wait, wait. Explore that. Yeah. I think much like his own delusional? paranoia, he sees himself as less egotistical than he actually is and sees himself as less paranoid, like paranoid than he actually is. Agree for sure with the latter. I think I need a little bit more on the former, but okay. I can, I can see where you're coming from for the whole point, though. So it's kind of like he's making the argument that he doesn't need to dress up this way. Yeah. But at the same time, he does. Yeah. Okay. All right. I can give that its time in the sun. Okay. Hmm. But, of course, he doesn't have that kind of leverage inside of this conversation. Going in to talk with Lord and Lady Harms, and he's walking out on the wrong foot in the first place, being told that Lady Grimes, by Lady Grimes, that there has been a theft of steel again against the House Ladrian by a group called the Vanishers. All right. Such a cool name for a thieving crew. And all this makes me think of... Is why did none of the thieving crews have cool names in the first book? <laughs> it would have been so much better. Instead of Cayman's crew, it could have been, I mean, the the Cayman crocodiles. I don't know. I don't know. They didn't explore crew names in the first book, and they should have. <laughs> it is one of many tiny details that would have just been, like, so fun that I... Mm-hmm. We're never the focus, but it does. But it they, does con- feel like it's they just constantly like- popped up, though, specifically Cayman's crew and the mm-hmm. the crew could have had a cool name because they're referenced all the time. Yeah, I agree. Preaching the, the question choir. here. <laughs> the, the question here is, is it is it Brandon's fault or is it the crew's fault for not? I think it's Brandon's <laughs> fault. Name themselves. I think it's Brandon's fault. What <laughs> crew like what thieving crew leader? Goes doesn't by the also want a cool name <laughs> and it like a cool flag or like a cool lapel pin or like something you know colors An colors emblem. at the very least colors yeah right something something to unify people come on a tattoo mm-hmm. you know every crew has a tattoo a brand uh, we'll yeah, go barbaric some about cases it is a brand yeah like why not well fucking brand them i'll fucking get a pile brand, brand right now you want to do that right now i got yep i think i could I got a candle. I think it, that gets hot enough. I don't have a brand. <laughs> it's got things to make things hot. I don't have things to make hot. I have paper clips. I could make it work. You could make it work. Yeah, let's fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> a third vector is introduced before he's able to meet with the harms, though. The harmses, the harms, the harms, though, as he finds his old friend Wayne snooping around his place, having abandoned his assigned post at the back of Weathering, having uh, abandoned his assigned post back at Weathering. They're having a continuous conversation where Lord Harms walks through with his stern looking daughter, Staris. He's grumpy and upset that he's wasn't getting talked to in the time and the allotted meeting that he was meant to when Wayne unveils his particular talent. That of seemingly shape-shifting and improv acting. Of course, we learn that this is all a careful trick done by 
done with one of Wayne's metals, bend alloy, creating a speed bubble. So bend alloy, bend alloy is a new metal. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's such a fun ability. Like, I can't complain about that. It's super cool. And the the creativity that comes along with pairing these two with each other and their abilities, like, we'll get into that later, I know. But right now, Wayne, if we're going to make an early pull for our boy, just right off the bat, it's Wayne. You pull for Wayne as our boy? At the moment, yeah. If we have to choose one of them, which I think we let him... We let him earn it, but our boy, our boy, our boy, Wayne, this is, this is that alloy. This is that metal that I was talking about that the ability itself feels a lot less hard. And I know that those rules will come into play and I know, like, I know it'll happen, but just the fact that it is a predefined bubble makes it feel so different it's just such a different ability compared to everything else and it feels differently defined as well in that in that way i will be satisfied with it like i trust brandon enough for that but it feels out of place compared to the other abilities so can i can i ask it makes for a very why it feels out of place to you we get a couple of examples of it is kind of my we do get examples we get but we we also get so many exemption like nah, not exemptions to the rule but so many possibilities for that the rules that have been placed to be broken like not moving the bubbles like the bubbles being stationary and not necessarily knowing what stationary means and if that's based on some sort of relativity like can it happen on a train that's a great question pj and we know that this exists in a universe with a spinning, moving planet. So how universal is this bubble? Those are both great questions, PJ. We know it works on the planet, so it has to move with relativity of something. So things like that are immediately mm-hmm. what come to mind for me. And yeah. What's, what's so kn- fascinating to me. Go ahead. No, I just I know those rules will come to be later, but. They're so ambiguous right now, but also the distance of the bubble and the size of the barrier. I love, I love the fact that the descriptor of the way that objects interact with the barrier is defined. I wish there was more of a definition of what happened if somebody walked out of it and how that affected them. Cause I would assume it would affect them in a similar way as it would a bullet, but that's getting more granular than I think we need to right now. Perhaps, especially since we aren't even talking about the example yet. I do want to just at the very least at the top of this mention that I think this is some of the danger that you can play with writing in a very hard magic system is that a softer magic system plays mostly with the canons of probability, which is how you've set up the world, how you've designed things in general. What's the sense of mysticism? Do you understand how far things can stretch generally without understanding the rules? But when you get so granular in detail, you can lock yourself into a very strict canons of probability that makes it very hard to violate these, not violate, but to add or supplement rules without full context because it feels like a violation of things that came before so give me the full context 
Right. I, what I'm saying <laughs> is that I feel like that's a danger. That's that's one of the dangers of hard magic systems that I don't think people talk about a whole lot. I, I know that you're not submersed in this culture, but as a as someone who is working on something and works on writing pretty consistently i'm finding this to be a thing more and more is the more that you define the more satisfying some conclusions can be to people because it feels like it's grounded it feels more like sci-fi than it does fantasy because it feels like physics or chemistry or whichever way you want to equate that in some hard science but you can also lock yourself into such a tight corner that any changes, adaptations, or anything that you might need to make or stretch for the story, cool boy, yeah. I mean, yep. can it can lock you into a corner where all you do is you sit and you question, as opposed to you know, like is there fun, fun like commentary on the general idea and practice in the whole? Is there any way in the world that you think that Brandon could answer every question and every possible conceit? about Alamancy, Ferrochemy, and Hemalurgy ever across all of the novels, especially as combinations of each other. If, I mean, it was sort of rhetorical. I'll take your answer, though. No, I, I don't necessarily need him to be able to answer every question, but I want for there to be the rules set up that don't contradict each other. And that's all I care about so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it seems to be the case so far. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think any of the rules with Bandoloi, as we've seen them so far, contradict anything else. They just stretch outside of the conventional bounds, like you were saying to begin with. Like it, the idea of a speed bubble was very different. This idea that you can pop up this like area basically where time is constrained and everything then happens all at once when it collapses. You know, is a one of the coolest, strangest forms of not time travel but time manipulation. I've seen represented in fiction like this is eloquently done in a fantastic mm. fashion. I think. Yeah. The idea of like I needing just, to cough on your way out of the bubble to like disguise everything that happened in the middle of the bubble, you know? Well, there's that, but there's also the idea of somebody trying to walk out of a bubble and mm-hmm. it being spherical, their head exits before their body. So there's a whiplash effect because their head would be out of the bubble while their body is still inside of it. So the motion doesn't happen instantaneously because there is a physical barrier that half of their body is through and half of it is if not. If and that's walking why through a bubble. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Entering. We haven't seen that one. yet, though. Right. No, but they've talked about it. Right. They talked about it with bullets, which is what you were pausing earlier. Like, what would that be like with a body? I think it would be bad <laughs> per, per your point, especially if you like like russian dance your way out with your feet first like it could be really bad your head in the bubble because your head's where all your actions come from i yeah it could be tragic (laughs) yeah that could be really bad yeah time dilation as you're falling that'd be weird that would be really weird i don't yeah not sure not sure (laughs) (laughs) so sounds bad (laughs) yeah falling into it because Oh. <laughs> yeah, this gets complex really quickly. We'll just let that be. Stairs you like begin spaghetti legs. <laughs> yeah. This is like a wrap-up conversation for sure, like some sort of experimental like this this might be a devil's cut question, like just working out some weird physics of bend alloy and the possibilities. Steris and Wax begin a conversation about their potential arranged marriage that veers into all sorts of topic, as well as the legalese behind the contract that will guide it. What do you think of Steris and her thoughts on marriage? And 
to append that, how about the religion of the path versus that of survivorists, as we understand it up until this point? So Steris's thoughts on marriage feel so perfectly noble, like in the noble in the sense of like the nobles of era one, it being this contract for business and status and also requiring this pageantry of love and like commitment to each other. I mean, it's not a it's not a unique idea it happens in real life it hap- it still happens now but more more commonly happened in the past but to have a several dozen page contract outlining every little thing is certainly extra regarding the religions though the path i think is pretty obviously the path of sazed or harmony even if it was more ambiguous than that like if it wasn't so obvious that it was Sazed. It feels described well enough and like all the caveats and requirements and thoughts around it feel well enough described that I would say, yeah, that sounds like something Sazed would put forward. So it feels very in character there. The survivorists, however, pose an interesting question for me because I'm still trying to figure out if this is based on the Church of the Survivor following Kelsier or if it's based on following Spook or the Survivor of the Flames, or as we get exposure to later, the Lord Mistborn. And where do you think that lands? I think it lands on Spook, but I don't have much to follow. Like That's just a hunch more than anything. It's not actually based on anything specific. Well, would it, would it be derived from his... I? Would it be derived based on his place in the... I, I understand that it's just a hunch for sure. I understand the name of the Survivor of Flames, the way that we're comparing that and adding that in here. I want to just address the fact that he's known as the Lord Mistborn. Do you think that they wouldn't like maybe title it after him if it was like a little bit more derived? Or do you think that they would subsume the title because it's about the two survivors? Like, I just... I want a little bit more meat on your, your bone there, if it makes sense. So I feel like... With the end of Era 1, we got a definitive religion. Basically. We got, like, yeah, yeah. The, terrorist fa- the terrorist faith was the true religion. Like, we, mm-hmm. we got an explicit, like, answer to that question. And that resolved. Right. So, new religion, like, old religions from there can still exist and i'm okay with that and that'll happen i'm sure but i feel like most people would navigate like navigate to new unknowns religion is very very good at answering unknowns and unknowables so a new patron that isn't like adhering to previously unknown things that have become known makes sense for a start of a new religion to me okay yeah yeah, it tracks a little bit better because it feels like anything that could have been pre the changeover of the world like that feels like it's wiped clean by the true religion to some degree. So I, I can understand where you're coming from then from the that perspective. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. OK. Yeah. As far as the Steris and Wax relationship goes, you know, like, come on, this is this is pretty. I mean, it's pretty pretty weird. Certainly weird. It's a 
definitely business. <laughs> it's definitely business. I I want to say it's sterile. It's her name's Steris, yeah, right? I mean, but it, it is very sterile. It is very sterile. Yeah, and I think that's by design. It's her intent. Uh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. She's she's pushing for that. I mean, is she pushing for the? There's there's some nuance there that I don't necessarily want to just override by saying she's pushing for that. But like the entire concept of the contract of the whole thing and the way that it's all derived from this sort of singular religious agreement is it's not fun it's not it's not a (laughs) it's not a real relationship by any means not that i'm the pro in the room mr taken man but oh we have a 50 page contract outlining all of it oh do you okay i just i hadn't checked if you had written the prenup yet or not like it was a (laughs) it's a necessary necessary check here Does that include podcast time? I'm just curious. I'm just a little, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm worried, but like if you're going to negotiate page 17, I negotiate contracts for work every day. And if you need a contract negotiator for our time, all I'm saying is I know a guy (laughs) and his name is me. Yeah. (laughs) Who better? (laughs) But we get a lot more speed bubble fun to move on from the Saris Wax relationship that is very dicey that we'll definitely return to. We get more speed bubble fun as Wax and Wayne dip in for a second to share a conversation with Marisy, the younger girl who followed into the room and his Wax's loss of Lessie. This is clearly a point of contention between our two leads so far as Wax has begun to move on, but Wayne is dragging him back into his old self and the mystery of what's going on therein. This is such a clever way to go about having a private conversation in the midst of another conversation. It feels out of the box in the thinking. I wonder if this is the typical use case for it, but I'm looking for more out of the box uses of powers like this now from, from here on out, like give me cool shit. It's true. I, I, I mean, we already got some cool shit, but I, I do generally more cool shit. I never be satisfied. Always be unsatisfied. How dare you? Also, (laughs) it feels this whole thing, this whole book has this feeling of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies to me that I just adore. And I just nailed that when we were talking about the the sort of secretive and the way that this plays out in kind of these side conversations and everything like that. It feels almost entirely like I've already got the Sherlock Holmes texture from the story because of a lot of the work that Wax does on the side. And like you get that investigative detective side of the story to some degree. But I really just nailed that Guy Ritchie sense when you brought up that idea of how cool these speed bubble conversations are. And it feels like the off camera to talk about what's going to happen and then seeing it happen kind of moments that Guy Ritchie is so well known for, even if it's just side conversations. Yeah, I get a lot of heist movie vibes from this entire section. And uh, like, it feels backwards. And like, Mm -hmm. from the other point of view, like from the from the lawman point of view, but it's still like those vibes all the time. And I love it. Yeah, if the first book was a heist, this is a a detective breaking a crime organization, you know? Mm hmm. Like, yeah. These have like polar opposite origin points. So it's fun. 
Wax and Sarah's conversation continues, but his curiosity cannot be quenched. Of course, the mysterious bullet casing that Wayne gave him is made of aluminum, as the most dangerous weapons are made so that they can't be detected or affected by Alamancy. As the harms depart, Wax and Wayne begin to further unpack the mystery of these robberies, and Wayne swings a bit below the belt as he thinks that Wax has sunken beneath his moral station since demissing his job as a lawkeeper. The chapter closes as Wayne leaves and Wax contemplates existence. So, what's interesting to me in this, one is that this never came up in the first books, because we had aluminum. Never, I mean, it wasn't, it was rare, but it wasn't, like, that rare. But it was also never described as, like, allomantically inert. Because it has allomantic traits, and it can be burnt, and it has a uh, an alloy. But it's also one that's only valuable to Mistborns. But there's no other metals that are allomantic metals that can't be affected by steel or iron. So it's it's interesting to me as to why this is the case. Because it seemed to be, because it's inert but like there are other metals that i don't know why this great question yep yep i mean to to your point it is very fascinating because it is something that almost seems to have this like unique interaction around it which is that it's it's not that it's not possible to be used as an elementic metal it's that it other metals don't react to it in the same way um mm-hmm. that every other metal reacts to every other metal so far as we're aware it's aluminum i mean other than silver like dodgy substance yeah silver so, as well silver we get that yeah. in the the chains that vin was shackled to in the last book mm-hmm. so the idea is it's not an alimentic metal so it can't be pushed or pulled upon but that's how it was described i I don't know if that was textual or extra textual but aluminum seems to fall into that category but it is alimantic i trust it it'll happen i get it but the thoughts are there Uh, yeah i'm I'm not even yeah yeah yeah. i i wasn't even trying to uh dissuade or like pose this as a question it's just aluminum is an interesting thing because it belongs on the alimantic table but at the same time you know, it seems to it's not that it's non-reactive entirely or like completely inert. It just it reacts very like the way that like what happens when it burns. It's a zero sum game. So, yeah. At the same time, metals, presumably that aren't alimantic grade metals can still be affected by iron and steel. Mm hmm. So it's not just a matter of like what's alimantic and what's not and how does that interact with iron and steel. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a step beyond that. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. entirely different. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, definitely more, more than we bargained for, mm-hmm. just like this episode. Chap, do you have to go to the bathroom? I've got to yeah. run, grab something from outside quick. And, All good. Yeah. Yep. Chapter three. Isn't it so great that we don't have to read logbooks at the top of every chapter? I don't know if you feel that way, but oh boy, 
That's free. <laughs> Eight hours later, Wax is left still contemplating, and we get more information on these roguish vanishers and their ongoing thieveries through the broadsheets. Uh, this is really interesting because we actually get a page of the broadsheet to read ourselves, and also Wax gives us some exposition that the broadsheet provides. It's really interesting to have this like in-world article of information. Very different then mm-hmm. the books that I just slandered, <laughs> the log books, to have something that just feels tangible comparatively. What do you think? It's super cool. I yeah. really like the inclusion of them. That said, you had mentioned to me how jarring it was to listen to the audiobook because it reads it. It did not read it for me. I don't know if it's That's... a new edition of the audiobook or different between hostings or whatever, but it didn't didn't read it for me so i didn't have it isn't it doesn't read it in this book it reads it in all of the other ones i forgot that it didn't do it in this one okay Mm -hmm. interesting (laughs) i can imagine how it would be jarring Mm-hmm. Well, because it reads like <laughs> it reads like a newsie, you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah, la di da do about Ellen Dell, and there's some vote, vote X Y Z, vote for freedom, vote for loyalty, vote for Veltri or whatever it is. Like there, there are a lot of things that are are very, I think, fantastic as far as world building go, but are really jarring when you're listening to the audiobook where you're like, this hey, is uh, cool. <laughs> But I'm a little concerned. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa, buddy. So, yeah. Now, I I just really enjoy the idea that you have this, like, physical piece of media in the book, and then you also have this sort of, you've got this textual description of, like, his experience with the media and what he focuses on, I think, even more specifically. It's just, you know, it's a a small thing, but I think it's a cool moment. Mm -hmm. So, if you know me... I'm a bit of a tea lover. I actually have tea on every single episode of the show. I drink mine already. It's sitting over there in my Iron Man cup. There. And so I love Tilmay's little conversation about making tea after wax is like, well, tea's fucking tea. And Tilmay's like, no, tea is not tea. It's not all the same. And, you know, that he's making this tea for him to get through those notes late at night. I, I just I adore that little bit of the conversation of like spicy or sweet or like, you know, like he's moving through all of these different notes and he's like, I'll construct the right tea for what you're looking for right now. Mm-hmm. It's just the right amount of hipster for me that I'm like super cool with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. As as it goes. That said, moving on from the tea, Wax begins to piece things together like Charlie Day with a good old Pepe Sylvia board. He surmises that he thinks that the random crimes were less about the crimes themselves and more about the people stolen as each were from wealthy families that likely contained an Alamancer. What'd you make of the whole thing? First of all, do we drink for tea? I think so. I think we drink for tea. I think we drink for tea. This is so specific. Yeah. It feels like cocktails of tea. Yeah, cheers. It does. Exactly. This is really where that sort of heist film vibe ratchets up a little bit. And it's again, it's it's the inverse, but it still evokes those feelings. And I I really enjoyed (laughs) the Pepe Sylvia board, as you as you called it. I agree with you. It's it's so interesting because it's like contra heist. It's not it's not like a heist film itself. It's it's more on the other side of that experience. Please procedural. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> but not quite, not quite. Yeah, more. And that, and that's where I go back to like the that's where I really like the Sherlock Holmes Guy Ritchie comparison, because it mm. even the Sherlock Holmes Guy Ritchie comparison still has this feeling of 
heistiness to it, despite it not being about Sherlock Holmes stealing things. It's about the deconstruction. Like it, to me, that is the most direct comparison and almost emulation of the story. I don't think that's something that he was latching into. I know that he said that he likes the movie, but like, I don't think that that's what he's, you know, trying to do. It's seeing all the pieces click into place like you do in a heist movie, but you do just the same in the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes or in. Yeah. Most detective. I mean, any anything like anything detectives. Yeah. 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 It's all the same feeling. I just equate it with heist. So agreed. Yeah. And that makes sense. It it all rotates around crime. So, you know, those Mm. those overlaps make sense to me as well. We also learn a lot more about Wax's past uncle, Ed Warren, through a little anecdote that Tillamade shares regarding his horse racing days as a gambler. And it wasn't necessarily that the gambling itself was bad, as he was good at it, but it was that his attention was divided between what he should be doing and what he was good at, maybe. I love this as a metaphor for Wax, of whom really needs to come here and pick up the house and bring it up to the standard and kind of lift it up as opposed to letting it sink and letting all these jobs fail and to avoid falling into the traps of doing this lawman job and doing the Pepe Sylvia job as opposed to what he should be doing. You know, it's, it's such a good metaphor that I wonder if it's too good of a metaphor and if it's entirely fabricated as a means of pushing wax in the right direction. Hmm. Okay. Maybe not entirely fabricated, but pointedly accentuated. Sure, sure. A little uh, so on the nose that it's like, do you mean (laughs) this for real? Yeah. Yeah. Like when I'm trying to relate something directly to you to tell you something, you know, I don't I don't think you ever do that. Well, I mean, you don't fucking listen. So it doesn't (laughs) matter. Yeah, no, I, I do get that. I do get that. And that's where I think it's it's good because, you know. He, I, I think Tillamay does a good job of, Tillamay as a character also dances the line of Alfred pretty firmly as, as far as things go. And we, we've been talking about a lot, a lot about detectives and uh, I'll definitely, I want to get into this later as I think the action and wax in the moment seems to evoke almost Bruce Wayne. But Tillamay is such an interesting character because he's not quite Alfred, but he also at the same time has those kind of alfred-esque antidotes or anecdotes excuse me not antidotes there's no poison here although maybe you know culture can be poison i don't know something 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 yeah i don't know i i just really enjoy the way this bit overlaps mm-hmm. yeah i do too yeah it's a good call especially though. the alfred thing makes a lot of sense and i'm trying to think of a better comparison one that's an advisor but not necessarily in on it you know yeah Right. Whereas Alfred and like Jarvis kind of fill similar roles, but they're also in on it. mm -hmm. And this is more of a spiritual role without necessarily being an active participant. I think that Tillamay is a well-executed character because he is unassuming, but knowledgeable. And we almost immediately trust like foundationally because of how much faith he both places in wax, how much trust he, he puts into the system and how much he evokes our understanding of the, like his training in almost terrorist like behavior, terrorist like behavior. Yeah. 
very much very much like Sazed from the first book mm-hmm. totally and so, so we're, I, I don't want to say we're like lulled is the new hero of ages got it okay we're cool we got this let's go forward we get a little bit more on the path here <laughs> and I wanted to ask what your thoughts are on the earring the prayer and the like where's your head at with this religion the you said earring you really I moved on no I know I mean, you're good <laughs> the earring gives me really weird vibes obviously evoking hemallergy and thereby ruin that could be weird vibes you know what I mean it shouldn't because I know contextually that ruin has been destroyed and annihilated and absorbed with preservation slash vin and harmony slash sazed control everything. But hemallergy is still not cool with me. Yet. <laughs> That's fair. I'm so glad you explained it that way. Cause I mean, that is kind of the tension of the moment is like, okay, but like, I'm not cool with this. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're, I mean, bad. <clears throat> Earring can't be good now. <laughs> yeah, but knowing that Sazed can use it potentially, like as, as a deity, could use it as a means of understanding and recognizing when somebody is praying to him or however they want to describe it, whatever the word is. I don't think pray is proper because it, he explicitly says not to pray to him, but to meditate and just using it as a gauge to say, like, hey, this person is actively thinking about and actively like trying to be their best self in the ways that I set forward without actually being omnipresent and like interactive still gives him an idea of how many people and who and where his following is, which would be useful information no matter what. So that's kind of my vibe that I get off of it. When I remove myself from the immediate, like, icky feeling of hemallergy. I love these conclusions that you're drawing. I think that they work very well. I, I think that it makes for such an interesting, like, tapestry to think about. Because if you think about the earring, it's also... And, and we think about the rules that we know with, with Rune and whatnot. The connection of the earring allows for Sazed harmony to directly interface with the user right so it's also like a lot of people inside of christian faiths which brandon is like often think of like praying as that mode of like speaking to god right and says it doesn't want that instead he has you pierce an earring and whatever you do whatever you say whatever not what you think because your thoughts aren't accessible but whatever you do in the moment in which you're pierced in theory because of the way that we know how ruin interacts says it's aware of and so like he gets the gist of what's going on with you and has a sense of, especially because he preaches this meditation, he has a sense of if you're off balance, right? And so if you're off balance as a god, he could approach you and, like, try to help or fix or, like, you know. I it, it's, so, mm-hmm. it's so fundamentally fascinating. I think a lot of books play with the idea and a lot of fantasy plays with the idea of gods being real, right? But this is an option for a god to actually answer a prayer that feels so grounded and fantastic in the right ways that i don't know if i i can't think of any other comparison from anything that i've read like this is so says it is so approachable as a god and then in addition the system is built out in such a way that worship is generally you know not appreciated 
And then he is really, as he's always been, a source of advice. And that just like it all it all meshes so well. I, I that's the one thing I can't fault this entire story is how well it all meshes. God, yeah. Yeah. This is just one this is one subtle example of Erwan's impact on Era 2 and how fantastically composed the planet of Scadriel is as such. Mm-hmm. It's deep. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's, it's so hard. good. Yeah. It's hard to talk about. Hard to talk against, I should say. They nail it for the most part. So we move on from the conversation about the path and kind of the the conversation about hemolurgy ruin and the way that that all connects now wax is flashed out of this temporary consumption with his work when he remembers lessie while holding the bullet in his hand and continues to work on his house's ledgers avoiding treading in his uncle edward's well-trodden footsteps as a gambler as someone that's not focusing on what's in front of him as someone that's distracted by other details would you make of this in this moment for wax i mean this is reinforcement of and entrenching of what i see to be a theme in this book throughout the rest of this story and that of that that being one of guilt and being haunted by the past and doing whatever you can to not repeat those mistakes and not follow in the footsteps of what what created those bad memories or created the downfall of your house in the past and like mitigating repeating mistakes Mm -hmm. seems to be a recurring theme it's also i mean he's haunted he's haunted by lessie and is constantly seeing that blood on the wall smile imagery every time sometimes more visual than others but present always present yeah and i think haunted is a great way to describe him at this point wax is surrounded by death his career has been one of of expounding death upon people he's been surrounded by loss from family and from those he loves and he's just been stricken by so much of this that it's left him being the only responsible party in these moments. And I think that our boy envelope has a tough time with death and has a lot to deal with as it comes to death. Mm-hmm. I figured like demeaning him and calling him envelope was, you know, enough to get you to bend, but clearly you're not ready for the, our boy <laughs> moniker. We'll move on. Well, I made the, I made the face before I yeah. registered the envelope, envelope. <laughs> before you fully registered the joke. I get it. All right. <clears throat> I, I won't refer to Wax's envelope, but it just feels it feels so right. You know, like if if Wayne was to give Wax a nickname and like nicknames don't always need to be shorter than your real name. I feel like it'd be envelope, you know, like the, the piece of shit, like defined by a fucking letter and everything else. Anyway, mm-hmm. we move on to chapter four. And I got to say, off the bat, I was just struck by the use of the term as we've been talking about these different swears that are placed throughout. Harmony's forearms is definitely <laughs> the oddest exclamation in the story so far. Like, this is... I fucking love it. It's good. Don't get me wrong. But it's the weirdest one. 
it's the weirdest one but it also like he it's the thing that defines him in the mm-hmm. physical sense his copper mines they're bracers on his forearms so like it makes sense it makes sense to me but fucking hilarious totally with you yeah i definitely agree with you it is so run we're well into chapter four after talking about our favorite swear so far here but we've once again been paused for other means and so we once again return to you a little bit more intoxicated than the last time pj you grabbed another back half beer what's the fun beverage that you're drinking same as the first oh it's the same as the first he's doing a repeat it's a it's a beer peat folks okay did year five swing juice then year five again Hot damn, here we are. We find ourselves in a grand ballroom where we'll spend almost the entire rest of the story this week. This is, of course, the Yeoman Mansion, and it's a party for sure. In its own way, I think Brandon is pointing us here to show that while 300 years have passed, the society has improved a little. It hasn't altogether committed to changing itself completely. It's fun to be back in a ballroom, even if it's under auspicious circumstances with few changes yeah there are some differences to this though like yeah number one that this ball is attached to a special event as opposed to i don't know it's thursday (laughs) let's let's go which is kind of the way that the society operated under the lord ruler so there's that difference there but also i think what it really highlights is the fact of that If the people are given the option, they're going to choose indulgence and partying when necessary and when able. Like, that's just kind of a human nature. Uh, Agreed. Yes, agreed. It's it's a nature of it's it is a part of the nature of excess or a culture of excess to some degree. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I just find that there's like an echoing here, so to speak, through the writing, which is one of excess one of this top end culture that we are once again being brought into we're not seeing it from a lower perspective necessarily in the same way that we were through the final empire so Mm -hmm. even though in his own right wax is kind of thought of as lower because of his time in the roughs and is thought of as very different there's some mirroring there right but yeah it's it's definitely something. I really enjoy the conversation that Steris and Wax share as they're evaluating the ballroom together. It really highlights how different they are from each other and how even their assumptions of people as they're looking around the room are different. Yeah. Their focuses seem to be very split, whereas Wax focuses on the setting and the decor and just the opulence in general. Steris is focusing on the people and who's present and why and really breaks down like the the social aspects of this indulgent event like it's a lot more varied not varied but a lot deeper than just the indulgence that's portrayed yeah there's there's this difference too where i i think to some degree Wax assumes either very little or the worst in people in these moments when he's looking around the room because he's looking for threats. And Steris is dressing down motives as she's looking around the room or like reasons as to why people are here, right? Those are two very different poles to be evaluating, you know, the people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I want to bring fair. up here too. Yeah, I wanted to bring up here too that she brings up a third religion that we we haven't heard of up until this point when she's evaluating one of the couples, which is that of sliverism and that of worshiping old iron eyes. What do you what do you think of that? I mean, my friend, iron eyes and old iron eyes specifically. I think, or no, I'm thinking old Ironsides. Was yes. Marsh old called- Ironside is Lorne, but right. Was old Iron Eyes ever attributed to Marsh, or is that just Iron Eyes? And it was I ironic that, even, that he became an Inquisitor because he was always called Iron Eyes because of his eye color. Right? I right? think I I was adding the flourish of old Iron Eyes, not that he was referred to okay. as that way. But yes, it is kind of an irony that he was referred to as Iron Eyes because he was irony. the Tin Eye. Irony. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't I can't deal with the metallurgic humor <laughs> and the depth here, um, but you're not wrong. Yes. Needless to say, you are correct. Mm. He was referred to as Iron Eyes and then as such was given Iron Eyes. And now there's that briefly ironic moment and then we move forward. Yeah, I, I think it's not a mistake that we're at the Yeoman Mansion, considering Yeoman worshipped the Lord Ruler. And I believe sliverism to be the worship of the Lord Ruler and his ilk, mm. which would not in a necessarily aligned way bring Marsh into the fold as well, being an inquisitor. Do you think Marsh is still alive? Interesting. I, I guess even to pose it a little bit further, do you think anyone from the original crew is still alive? Including Marsh. Um, but- Marsh, I think, would make sense to still be alive. Because he didn't explicitly die, and he has 14 spikes, I think, one of which is probably gold, and like presumably has access to the exact same combination of metals that the Lord Ruler had in order to stay alive for thousands of years. So I think if anyone were to stay alive, Marsh would be it. Obviously, Sazed. I don't think anyone else has the capacity to do so unless given something off screen and miraculously yeah no this is totally a raw prediction so i i think yeah. you use the two that you had the firmest examples for and anything else would be a, a pure speculation i mean even spook has been bes- bestowed upon him misborn abilities mm-hmm. but that doesn't allow for hundreds like extending life so maybe kelsier still gonna stick by that one okay all right wait maybe kelsier that's you're taking in maybe kelsier i'll i'll remove the maybe i think kelsier is still around (laughs) i can't wait for that one to pay off (laughs) and Moving on from that, bam, this wedding we're talking about, of course, is the wedding we had our little chat about last week. Thanks again to Michelle for joining us. And I'm so sorry that your beautiful fictional fictional wedding here is interrupted by a couple of thugs and thieves. It's so it's so cool that we got to have this conversation and also we're completely blindsided by a lot of the reality of the conversation you know i for me at the very least i was blindsided because i knew exactly what was coming and i was like oh shit that's so fucking cool it's Um, such a cool reveal it's a really cool easter egg yeah 
that's a relationship that has to exist now. Like they're not allowed to break up because <laughs> of this book. <laughs> They've been immortalized in text. Now I, I, I think based on our conversation a week ago, they're doing great. Um, they're doing it, great. They're doing great. It was, it was very cool. <laughs> and I, I had a grand old time despite Riverside giving us a pain in the ass on the episode and uh, making this release. It'll be a light. Not that anyone outside of the people who are listening to it immediately will know that, but I mm. greatly enjoyed our time chatting about that episode. I did too. But thank you again, Michelle, for coming on the show and chatting with us. And, you know, thanks for uh, contributing to the whole canon in so, such a substantial way between the 17th shard and uh, everything else that you do. Cheers. Cheers. So moving on, of course, we're in the midst of this wonderful wedding and the harms in wax all gather at the table and are served by a waiter with a familiar voice. One that wax recognizes. And of course it's Wayne. <laughs> Marcy almost <laughs> begins to piece together who the server is when wax interrupts and distracts, bringing the focus of the conversation back to the vanishers and the abductions. We also figure out that Marcy knows a lot more about wax and law keeping than she'd let on to begin with. Yeah, so Wayne, fucking master of disguise. Such a fun... Want to be a master of disguise. I want to be a master of disguise. I want to be a master. They're like turtle Uh, enough in the turtle suit. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He does a great job, but but also... He is turtle enough for the turtle club, for the record. He he is. Marisi is... Super astute. Mm-hmm. And I I don't understand how well we're able to get like these adept characters and like they're very good at what they're good at, but they're also just negating each other's like things they're good at, and it still feels satisfying. You know, mm-hmm. like she's able to notice that, oh, there's something up. That's Wayne. While he's still like really good at what he's doing. And like it, it's it doesn't feel jarring to pull one character out of his or her like strong suit. It's just it feels like a needle has been thread in this scenario. I don't know. Does that make sense? Am I coming out yeah. of nowhere? No, no, it, it definitely makes sense. It it is it is a very finely threaded needle where she's never revealing too much information and he's never revealing it, between so we've got our three players inside of the scene, right? We've got Wax, we've got Wayne, we've got Marisi for the most part, and, and Steris and Uncle Harms. God, what's his name? Jackstum. Jackstum Harms. Anyway. So given kind of the the group of people that we have at the table, there is a delicate needle that I think is being threaded all the time, which I think is something that Brandon didn't ever really approach before in the previous books, right? Like this is, I, I think, so delicately handled and creates so much tension because of the way that the conversation is so balanced and like can... Will one hand tip before another in different moments? That also makes you really appreciate Wayne's ability to 
a blend in and b like pull into time bubbles and like talk on the side and then pull back into like thread a needle very well including like on his own where he's like i can imagine scenes in a wayne pov being like him pulling into a time bubble and being like okay gotta get ready gotta think about this can i do this okay let's scruffy up the hair let's let's do this let's like ruffle the yeah there's just so much prep work that i can imagine in wayne's part instead of a bubble i don't know I love mm-hmm. I love the blend that's done here so well between these three protagonists. So, yeah, I know that didn't yeah, exactly answer your question, but no, it, but there wasn't really a question to it. It your comment gives more foundation but. to my comment, man. And Wayne's jokes like uh, let it be known. I appreciated the humor in Mistborn Era one. I really like the jokes. I think they're well done. And Wayne is very much I know that we've used this a lot in comparison specifically to Sanderson's work, but he's very Whedon-esque again. Like he's he's got the witty one-liners, he's got some funny bits, he's got some punchy like Wayne feels like he's torn not like he's a character necessarily from Firefly, but as though you ripped the jokes out of Firefly and stapled them onto Wayne in this mode, like stapled them onto the character. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love it. I unabashedly can't explain it. I fucking love Wayne. I would die for Wayne. Yeah, he's, yeah, <laughs> he's clever and he's fun, but, but he's he's fun and jokey without being without pulling you out of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Like it, it's it'd be so much. easy. It'd be so easy, especially in those Whedon-esque kind of situations, to be like, you wrote that to be a joke, not to be in line with the character. And it's funny, but now I have to, like, re-immerse myself. This maintains the immersion while still, like, recognizing this is a really fucking goofy character. Yeah, that's that's a great call. I, I totally agree. And I think that that is something that is so well earned through Wayne's characterization and performances of this, then it's just like, fuck yeah, I, I adore mm-hmm. him. What do you think about Wayne's reveal to Marisi and Marisu's reveal about of her knowledge about everything that the boys did in the roughs as though they were kind of these legends and talking about them? Not so much. I, I want to clarify just a smidge, not so much about like all the things that they didn't accomplish, but more about the fact that the legends made it her way or that they made it into the city to begin with from the from the roughs. What do you make of that story? I mean, as far as reveals go, I think I, I talked about this a little bit, mm-hmm. but I, I think building on that, I appreciate that we didn't have to wait long for it. We get a lot of tension being built very very quickly but we don't get a lot of dramatic irony and we don't get a lot of like oh this character knows about that character and that character knows about this character but like they don't really share the information back and forth we get that dramatic irony and the tension being built very quickly and then cut and creating this dynamic of a scholar of these two interacting with these two makes for a very cool dynamic yeah because because she is so learned right in those moments and she's she's just got this like sort of base instinct of like 
well, if they do this, like the the natural reaction that you should be doing, as I've studied it, is this. And there, there's just this interesting dichotomy of like the lived experience versus the learned experience um, mm-hmm. that I, I will definitely get into as we explore the next couple of chapters. But especially as they're just worshipped here in this moment on the page, it's man, it's fun. It's fun. I remember I can't remember. I think it was my second listen to this. I was playing within the first 30 hours of my Elden Ring experience, and I recall the specific zone in which I heard this for the second time, and like it really all like clicked with me right, and I got absolutely destroyed by this weird spider-looking thing with the spear. That's it. That's all. That's the whole, that's the whole <laughs> comment, but I specifically remember re-experiencing this text in that moment, dogging and being like, Oh, yeah, Marisy is so smart and so book smart. And we also have our street smarts. And now we're going to merge those together. And it feels so obvious when you deconstruct it that way. But it's so well executed that I don't give a shit. Like this is it's a perfect example of like how proper character building can just work for you in these contexts. So they finally circle back to thinking about the vanishers and trying to work out this problem as a group. When those doors are open at both ends of the ballroom, burst open violently. Something else is about to happen. PJ, no, but you and I have talked a lot about adaptation mm-hmm. and the idea of a movie or a miniseries or like we talked about this with Michelle. We, we talked about it a lot. This book feels so well paced and like this the reason i bring this up right now is this is where i was thinking about it while i was reading it Mm -hmm. it feels so well paced for a basically one-to-one adaptation in a movie like it's so well concisely and tightly written that you could write an entire like you could do a single movie without missing almost anything that was on the page like so little time is wasted here and i don't know that's very well displayed in this scene i agree 100 percent. i think that that's the strongest point to be made here is that this book sixty thousand words ish is ripe for adaptation this is literally perfect and ready to go i think it'd be a solid hour and a half like the whole thing each of the three chunks that we've broken out feel like a solid 30 minute sections to me at the very least. And I think when you get through them, you'll agree. That's like, this is hour 45 at most. And, but it's perfect. It's blistering. It's brilliant. And, and like Mm -hmm. brilliant in the way, like it's, it's not ingenious or anything like that, but it is so well thought and well wrought that it's like, fuck bulletproof in its own right. In this section, we get, heavy exposition to heavy action basically in the same sentence yeah in a way that's like it feels like it should be whiplash but it just makes sense yeah right it's like this is the natural progression of the way the scene was gonna go and like you knew it and it's just like you're set into it and you're like well of course oh fuck we knew that this was gonna happen this is the trend for Mm -hmm. them you know and so you're like, it, it, there's 
I, I think I've said this a couple of times in comments and in across our different podcasts and things like that. But one of the things that I look for in really good storytelling is something that is eminently obvious. Like it is something that is going to happen and that there is no other speculation about what could happen in this moment. There's only one truth and that you see you see this more often, I think, with improv when people like have to lead into a truth or they have to like build in a direction in, in something like Critical Role or Dimension 20 or things like that. That's more eminent because someone's playing a character. But I think as a writer, you have specific moments in which you feel a character's truth or a moment's truth or an event's truth. And this is like this is the only thing that could happen to make the story move forward logically without starting to stretch a gap and it's perfect. I mean, can't mm-hmm. imagine it any other way. Right. So with that, we move into chapter five, the shortest chapter of the week. We return to these almost gangster-esque thugs, and Wayne is reluctant to put his weapons down in the face of these strongly armed, but historically nonviolent thieves. And there's a lot of familiarity going on here surrounding the crime. Marisi attempts to take note of what's happening by taking down a drawing of the guard's face and wax notes both of both a familiar voice as well as an individual that he classifies as coloss blooded there's a lot of information that gets kind of spilled over here what'd you think so i really appreciated marisi's nervous talking as a means of calming herself because it becomes a very helpful tool for us as the readers to understand the scene as a whole like it's this built-in exposition plot device you know like it's just being able to calmly describe what's happening around her narratively (laughs) through a neuroses basically like it's explained through something that she has to do and so it feels logical to us because of the way that it's built but it just gives us a ton of information yeah that we wouldn't Mm -hmm. like that wouldn't otherwise naturally come to be I am, I wouldn't say necessarily struggling with, but hung up on the Colos blooded thing. Okay. It makes my understanding of how hemallergy works much more muddy because it introduces hemallergy and hemallergically created beings into a tappable and mingleable genetic pool. Which makes for really strange interactions. I don't know. This this isn't something that we talked a whole lot about in this podcast, of course, or anything like that. But there is like an ongoing conversation about races in D&D again to like circle this drain a little bit more. And, and the way that they like reproduce and the reason that they reproduce. This does seem to ask a question about a line that we didn't know if it could be crossed before or not. Could Coloss breed with humans coloss reproduction as we understood it was strictly related to hemallergy could there be something else and that's kind of the question that this adds yeah i yeah that's really what it adds yeah entirely it's it's definitely not Um, answered but it definitely adds that question and then then it creates if that's the case what are the implications of that answer in chandra yeah and oh what's the other there's three mysteries no is the third but yeah inquisitors 
because they're people, but technically so are the others. So yeah, in yeah, in literally exactly the same way, they just look more like people. Yeah, right. Kinda. Condra. Yeah. This this gets into some like funky things that I know that we've talked about before, but like the fact that like Inquisitors are definitely the blurriest on that line, so far as we're aware. The other two are stretched a little bit further. Colos, though, being the middle, Chondra are almost so far gone that it's like changeling-esque. Like, how does a changeling's reproduction work? I imagine them as changelings. Uh, like, straight up, I, if you if you were to I ask don't. me what does a Chondra in its true body look like, I think it's a changeling in StarCraft. Fair. Oh, oh more like a StarCraft changeling. That's different i was thinking a D changeling i would agree with you more in the starcraft changeling <laughs> i think that that's better to imagine the mask which is something that's very speciologically different than anything else anyway point being don't need circle of strain it does raise the question about coloss but it doesn't answer it and it's like coloss blooded huh like what's that mean that's a new new thing i think that's important because i think old brandon era one brandon would have been tempted to answer that question immediately as opposed to letting it live a little bit instead of the story and make you think about it Mm -hmm. it's fair so yeah cool all right lots to unpack there in the long term but what we definitely know then and i guess i can't i can't say definitely but What this implies is that hemallergy affects and alters DNA. Maybe. In a way that can be genetically passed. Maybe. Or they're misappropriating something else. We know that Coloss don't reproduce up until, like, through Era 1, Coloss do not reproduce the way that humans do. We know that. They use bodies to do so. So... Mm. Something else is clearly going on, and we don't have a rejoinder or an explainer for it right now. So, we're left questioning how this person is co-loss-blooded. But we do know that they retain the features to somewhat, to some degree, of a co-loss, but also a good amount of humanity. A lot more of humanity than any co-loss before that we've seen. Right. So, Patrius, the constable of the 8th Octant guard speaks up in defiance to the leader and gets smacked across the face by that leader. The group continues to roam around, collecting goods and belongings of everyone they can at each of the tables, matching Wax's Holmesian instincts. Wayne, of course, is very mad that the man took his fucking lucky hat. How dare he? The lucky hat comment, like, is so funny. It's so good, (laughs) but it's also, I feel like a comment that I'd heard before. Okay. Out of context, without any understanding of any of the characters or anything like that. I feel like I saw something about a lucky hat and I don't know what it was. Didn't spoil Hmm. anything, but like reading that maybe like it wasn't a new thing for me and I'm not sure what it was. Okay. Because of the lucky hat. All right. Yeah. Okay. Move on. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that thought. When Wayne brings up Pax's paranoia... Oh, my God. When Wayne brings up Wax's paranoia, it almost gives me, like, Batman vibes. Like, it almost gives me that sense in the dark 
night trilogy when we have those confrontation and different moments where it's like well you're a paranoid rich man you know it it just it reminds me of something pulled directly from nolan the thugs make moves to like take their hostages so they can make it out safely and single out terrorists for abduction terrorists excuse me christ they single out terrorists for abduction and mercy's naivete is on display when tarson the coloss-blooded individual picks up her drawing that she'd made of these vanishers early. This whole scene is, it's, there's a lot going on, but at the same time, it feels like an execution of a heist. Like we're, we're seeing a heist from the other side, considering the way this novel started, like we were saying this whole time. Yeah. I hadn't quite put my finger on it, but the idea of calling out Wax's paranoia being something out of a Batman Nolan film is a perfect descriptor of what I was thinking in that. So I appreciate you bringing that up because it's very in line with what I was thinking. There's a lot more to the pointing out Wax's paranoia thing, but I feel like I kind of got into that previously. Yeah. Wax in general is a little bit off, off kilter And like we've, we've drawn comparisons between him and Sherlock Holmes to some degree up until this point but he is not as solid on anything as holmes is ever like he is not so firm in his judgments he's maybe 60 to 70 percent he's there's a lot more questioning to him than a lot of the popular detectives that we might cite Mm -hmm. of course petraeus speaks up calling the thieves a coward or cowards for taking the women and the leader well, the leader shoots him. The world freezes and Wax and Wayne prepare in the speed bubble ready to fight back against these 37 bad guys. Two against 37. Who? Boy, we're in for some in for some shit. So this is there, there's a little bit that happens in between there. Yeah. And specifically, there's the comment about like have some fun, get it out of your system or whatever it is. Like, I can't remember the exact quote, but it makes me wonder knowing what we know later about, about the crew and like what's going on and like, who's doing what. And like, is it a couple of crews? Blah, 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 blah. Like there's a lot of stuff that we get to kind of parse through later as far as information goes. But knowing that and having that in mind, looking at this, was this, the like a demand by the hired crew saying like hey we want to shoot some people this time like make that happen or if it was a means of increasing morale understanding like hey these guys have been kind of teased by these weapons and they've been clearly wanting to use them so like if i let them use them maybe they'll be more inclined to work better with me next time or if it's Neither of those things, and it's just changing up the MO again, saying like, hey, they they know us to be nonviolent, so let's be violent now so they can be a little bit more on their toes next time. Or if it's simply frustration from the leadership and just being tweaked a little bit too hard and just wanting to have a little bit of chaos. Like there, there's a lot of ways that could have gone. And I could see any of those equally being kind of an answer to why they suddenly got violent this time, seemingly without reason to. 
provocation. Yeah. I, I feel like I agree with you on the side of the increasing morale side of things. They they weren't intending to get violent. The leader getting violent is a different stretch, I think, because of the sort of class of this attendance that they're like the fact that Petraeus, the captain of this guard, is there and that he was willing to put up a fight against him seems more like that person, that leader was trying to put Petraeus out with the intent of ensuring that further violence wouldn't be necessary. However, after that and the tensions rose, it feels like it's that, like you were saying, sort of increase in morale. Like it felt like it was more of a play to, yeah, do do a little bit of what you need. Release that valve a little bit. Take out that pressure because you are a bunch of hired thugs for the most part. Or I guess as an additional answer, taking out Petraeus, realizing, fuck, that's a high ranking member of the of the guard that we're up against making it less of a an individual attack on them and more of a more generalized attack on noble society takes the pointed pressure off and in, increases the general pressure but decreases the personal i'm a fucking getting pressure Vanisher. from the from yeah. the from the actual like constables yeah I, I can feel that. I, I feel like I still stick by the idea on the middle that we we're talking about, the the idea that this is a release valve more than anything else. I but agree. That as makes far sense as the leader's action goes, yeah. That's a little bit of a different train. All right. With that, we go into chapter six here. And the fight commences. Wayne drops the speed bubble that he and Wax are trapped in, and Wax notes where these thugs are aiming, aiming to nab their attention and distract from everyone else try to be that center of attention so they're all aiming at him wax makes himself far heavier by tapping his steel mind and pushes making him capable of pushing far stronger on objects than otherwise someone who is just an alamancer could this is a great example of compounding by using these forces together to really create something that's different than what we experienced before and when the halo bullets comes and he just Neo hands them to make them cascade in a way to wave around the bubble. Man, that's pretty fucking sweet in that moment when he just like puts them down. This is where that shooting through a bubble description comes in, right? This scene? I think they talk about how it's not viable. Not perfectly viable. Yeah. Specifically because so I, I appreciate that very much. Because of what I talked about before in that, mm-hmm. like when something's inside and out, out of the barrier, mm-hmm. there's going to be different influences in, in a different way, as opposed to just being like forces acting on a bit upon it differently. There's going to be stretching that happens. Yeah. Because part of it's moving faster than another part. And realistically, part of it is moving and the other parts not. So it's going right. to compress. It makes for a really weird. All of it. All of it's really weird. It's all really weird. <laughs> right. Right. Because then what I want to do is get into light and how light interacts <laughs> with it. And because if it right. light interacts with it separately, you can't see anything out of it. <laughs> It'd be black. Yeah. It'd be it would void. be impossibly difficult to make those connections. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but. 
that's not what we're dealing with. So what it does make me wonder, sorry, I keep like I'm meandering a little bit, but we don't, we can't deal with gunshots out of the steel bubble, but we could deal with, and it, it doesn't come into play, but I have a feeling it will steel pushes do not physically interact with any boundaries. So they could hypothetically happen from within a steel bubble or within a bend alloy, like time bubble. So wax could stack up and use a bunch of steel pushes and then drop a bubble and everything pushes out all at once. So he'd have the precision of individual shots against things with the immediacy of a more generalized push. And I'm expecting that to happen at some point in this story, but that's all I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> you're, you're just trying to work out the pairings and reactions. And I, I adore that. I, I really like that. I appreciate that they too very clearly when they're walking into this, this is not their first rodeo by any stretch. They've, they've been through a number of shit storms and they kind of know each other's behaviors and what they need to do. As such, Wayne sneaks around the room, making his way around to beat the hell out of those folks while they're reloading with their aluminum bullets and putting them into the guns that they change. I, I have to ask, though, as we're talking about all of these weapons and like different approaches to combat, what do you make of Wayne's choice to use dueling canes in a firefight in his individual speed bubbles as opposed to literally anything else? I mean, we get knowledge later on that he's confounded by firearms, but ignoring that. And just like making a realistic understanding of like his abilities, what he's able to do, what he does. This is a habit born out of practicality. It's not metal, so it's not affected by alamancers. It's easily concealed. It's quick and it's light. Like it, it, it's held on his person. Like there, there's, there's a lot of reasons why he would use dueling canes. Sure, but a lot of it, I think deals with the fact that it's he's somebody that is still he's a rogue he's he's an alimantic rogue Mm -hmm. so be stealthy as much as possible it's a great way to put it put it because it's like he can also use those regardless as we know as we understand things currently guns inside of the speed bubble aren't particularly useful as is like you could shoot someone within the speed bubble it would all work fine but you can't shoot outside of the speed bubble so any of the prep that you would do would be just like aiming close to someone and then you know putting it down and then putting the bullet in their heart like it's effective to a point but you could be more effective in other ways and i think that's kind of what he's good at and you wouldn't be able to cover up a gunshot with a cough. Well, they like, don't the even gunshot try to do that. Will still happen. Yeah, they don't. But yeah, they're, they they're not shooting try. from within from within the speed bubble. No, but even yes, but even their plans in these moments, like they're not trying to cover them compared to you know no the, but the conversations they were having i'm coming at it from a historical habit building perspective oh sure yeah, yeah like if you were to like get into the habit of using guns within a speed bubble you'd have to figure out a way to conceal that or just mm-hmm. not care about concealing it but he seems right. much more like conscious Cautious. of yeah sneaking yeah 
to to get back into the thread of the story here, Marcy is quickly grabbed by Tarson and is held in the same position as Lessie, flashing us back to the first scene in the novel, and Wax is paralyzed for a moment with the gun turning at him as opposed to holding it to her head, where she has her own moment of heroism, throwing her head back and headbutting him into the Tarson's chin while Wax shoots Tarson with her out of the way. It's, it's kind of this like combination moment where it's this it almost to our hero feels like this opportunity for him to overcome these events and he can't get past the fact that he's trapped in or that she's trapped in his arms but is able to beat it because of circumstance that she exerts as a person. What would you make of that moment? I mean, I can imagine maybe it's cliched and that's why I can imagine it, but. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think it would still be a very impactful and really great cinematic storytelling moment of Wax looking at Marisi and this bandit leader. It flashing to Lessie and Tan. Bloody Tan. Yeah. But those two in in the ballroom and then flashing back. Like, just more visuals of what he's thinking about in his head. It's just so well set up for cinematography. I I can, I can just imagine it already. Mm -hmm. I think this scene and this book as a whole is almost like we said earlier, it's just so easily adaptable. I think this is a perfect example though, of the way that you would cut to quiet in this moment in which Wax has to make a decision and then you see everything change. But at the same time, you see the fact that he only sees what he saw before in the face of Lessie and Tan. I love it. I, I think that you're totally onto it there. Mm-hmm. But he kill he injures Tarson by shooting him, of course. But we also find that Wayne is injured. And we also find out, of course, about his abilities, that he's able to heal himself with the ferrochemical power of gold. Few, god dang, we can't let our boy be hurt, and our boy is okay, so long as he doesn't get shot in the head, as we're made aware. Wax, at this point, in the middle of the battle, is almost certain that the leader is Miles, and the leader's body is seemingly dragged out of the room. Marcy dispatches the final bandit in the room, saving Wax so that he can chase after Steris, but instead he finds himself surrounded by a bunch of constables in the courtyard. There's a lot to talk about in this resolution here. Fire away through each of the bits. Constables in the courtyard. Cops are always getting in the way of a good chasing. Oh no. So I think the most fun and topical one is <laughs> true. In general though, there is so much that happens in the end of this scene. Like it, it feels like so many different points happening and like it, it's, it's just an acceleration of the fight and it all happens so quickly. It's hard to keep one question I have about the end of this scene, the, the end of this fight does gold work passively like pewter does, or does it need to be physically like an actively tapped? So pewter as an alimantic metal, does not need to be actively consumed. However, so far as we're aware, everything in ferrochemy ferrochemy needs to be actively tapped in order to be running. Okay. So far as we're aware. So 
Wayne has to be conscious in order to yes. heal himself. Yep. Can you tap a metal for someone else? No, because you cannot access someone else's metal mind. So no, like, there's no you, way to... Could you physically force someone to access their own metal mind? Not that we're aware of. Okay, cool. Good but to know. that said, I, I, I feel like that's the that's the clarification, right? Is like allomancy and ferrochemy are different in a number of ways. Allomancy can automatically feel itself because of the nature of having something in your stomach and it being like a bodily response versus tapping is something that's almost seemingly based on all of our other explanations directly connected mentally like there's that mental response that i think is so critical to a lot of this so makes sense yeah breton really dresses wax down for the legality of what's been done here despite the potential moral right of saving these folks and they managed to get away with quite a bit as no one was killed except for Petraeus, of course on on the side of the hostages and all the people of the party and that they had managed to kill 25 of the baddies themselves what do you make the conflict here between our two different types of lawmen and their conflicting senses of justice. We talked about this a little bit right away at the beginning when we were talking about the sense of, like, where does wax stand on the sort of lawful, good, lawful, neutral side versus otherwise. But I I think that this extends a little bit further, as we might think about, beyond just the laws and more into what needs to be done in the moment. What do you think? I mean, you know me, always going to be an advocate of bureaucracy and following the designated path over effective, efficient results. Oh, my God. Can you like <laughs> if you if you wouldn't mind, I, I could use some effective, efficient um, promotion paths. Can you just like can you? You know, advocate for bureaucracy for me there. Can you like be, you know, I need, uh, I need my, I need my government man. This road has several potholes and we are going to spend 10 times the amount of money and take three times the amount of time to fill the pothole. And all the while you'll be frustrated and we'll be frustrated and you'll Something... be happy to know that that's just how bureaucracy works something something 21 pilots something something potholes something something mm. my government knows something something we're here breton is a piece of shit and breton well he's not, he's not so bad let's be real breton is an advocate for the bureaucracy that we we're speaking about for a moment there i would say that makes him a bad person he doesn't uh, he's not innately bad though. He's not like let's let's talk about he's a worse person. But needless to say, we end the chapter with Marisy kissing Wax on the cheek before departing, thanking him for saving his life and Wax is met with another frustration. He's meant to marry Steris, but is conflicted because of Marisy's intelligence and beauty, feeling more like a natural match for him than otherwise, including Steris, despite an age gap. What'd you think of this sort of addition to kind of a romantic triangle of sorts? Yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure what I think yet. Those feelings are definitely there and very clearly there. There's also an air of obliviousness 
in the next section. And it, it just makes it seem complicated. And really what I get out of this is wax seems more distracted by the mystery that's going on than anything actually romantic that's happening in the moment. Mm hmm. Or at the very least, burying himself in the mystery enough so that he couldn't think about the romantic in the moment. You know, that's that's fair. Yeah, it's an A and B. Like I, I wouldn't dissuade from either side of the opinion. But mm-hmm. my one, yeah. my one takeaway from that, and not takeaway, but my one argument against that is the next section where he's stomping all over the social norms of like what to do with a single woman in a bedroom or in, in like a closed door room. And he doesn't even take into consideration that it might be a problem. And if he had any sort of romantic feelings towards her, that air of distraction, I don't think would be so much in play. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. So we're, we're on the same side of this, so to speak, because I, I, I think that I thought that you were playing the other direction, which is to say that, you know, this is more aloof and more distracting than anything else versus what you're saying is instead we we have a very different confrontation, a very different scene where he's definitely leading into solving the puzzle more than anything else, despite, you know, conflicting inclinations like we do have an inclination that he thinks that she's attractive here. So at the very least, like it's not it's not completely off the table. But it is less likely. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I can agree with that for sure. Oh, and like to end this chapter, I guess like Wayne is going to crash at Wax's place as the story <laughs> is officially on, baby. What Sleepover. Sleepover. Let's over. go. What's up? Come visit me, North Carolina, you fucker. <laughs> um, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, the sleepover. Very excited. Very excited for the way this goes. All right, we go into chapter seven, our final chapter of the week. And now for the first time, we switch point of views over to Marisys. What do you think of the switch and her making the approach on the Ladrian mansion? Would you would you think of that whole ordeal? So she feels like such a perfect switch for a point of view. And I'm glad that we got this switch now at the end of this section before like ending reading for the week, because I would have otherwise been questioning the entire time, whether or not we were going to get another point of view at all, or if it was just going to be waxes the entire time. Mm -hmm. So Marisi has this background and this outlook that complements the story so well. She's able to give us more insight, not only into the modern day society, but also into Wax and Wayne themselves as like law keeping legends. So like we, we get the historical background on our other main character through the lens of this really knowledgeable main character. It's a really cool dynamic yeah it's it's got a nice natural sort of dichotomy to it as as we think about the way that these two characters compare themselves right but i think that's the nature of like dueling povs to some degree is like seeing the way that other people's actions are evaluated by someone else or your own actions are evaluated by someone else i think is incredibly enlightening to the way that like people might revere someone like wax right we we talked a lot 
a little bit ago about like vigilanteism and the way that that could be sort of supported through like uh, Wax's past heroics. And this is this is sort of a way of like giving a little bit of a mirror to it through history and like thinking about the way that 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 character has existed through time and space and everything else. And I think going forward, it could also be a mirror to like evaluate events and is I I think a really like interesting POV to tag into the whole the whole mess, like you were saying. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's also a lot of embarrassment and a ton of faux pas that has seemingly been treaded on here as the conversation between the butler and Marcy Combs goes on. Combs, of course, being her last name. Combs and Holmes. Can we can we like can we put a finer point on it, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sanderson? <laughs> Are you aiming for, you know, more whiz cheese on top of this delightful pie that I'm eating? You know, especially because, you know, I think pie, I think sweet and, you know, whiz cheese on top of pie. Just I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's also fantastic because we really get different points of view of the mansion and our characters and how they're approaching these events as well. I especially love the idea of like Telemé and how we see him from other other perspectives yeah it seems based on like what i talked about before and what you just brought up that the idea of decorum and social norms in general just kind of don't exist past the laudrian front door you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah kind of what i'm getting front door this. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated the look of this mansion and all of the things that are missing and out of place and weird from her perspective, like the not super high class paintings inside of very, very fancy frames and spaces where paintings should be in general and aren't like that sort of level of detail is a very sleuthy point of view. So putting ourselves in that mindset feels very natural here. Especially since we've seen this mansion through Wax's perspective and he glances over all of this, right? Like he doesn't really pay attention mm-hmm. to all of these finer details and to see it from from Marcy's perspective here lends it an entirely different light. It, it, it really paints two different pictures of the same place that we've seen. Like I, I almost feel like from Wax's perspective we almost see like generic mansion, generic everything. Like these are these are sort of the generic things that I live through. But when we look through Marisy's eyes, it feels so much more refined and tighter and more visual that it lends itself to a more like articulate view because of the way that she looks at things, which I love point of view perspectives for. So I'm I'm really appreciative yeah. of that difference. It makes me wonder: was this was this mansion ransacked of its like valuables before wax got here or what were those like valuables sold as gambling debt at some point? We know he was good at like his, his uncle was good at gambling. So probably not, but right. Like my, my assumption is that he like this, this house was taken advantage of in the interim before wax got here based on that description. Yeah, totally. That, that feels like the most, I, well, Hmm. 
I I think I agree with you in the sense that I I think that it was also taken advantage of, but I think that Wax also doesn't pay attention to it. I I think that I would lend credence to uh, yeah, yeah both sides of what we're saying is is that it's there's more of a dualistic approach here for sure. No, I I I don't think Wax understands that, and I don't think he knows that. Yeah, but I don't think he realizes it because he's not trained to look at high society homes. Because he hasn't been there. Yeah. He's been locked in isolation to some degree. Right. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing that he's in tune with. For sure. I I love the reverence that Marcy has towards Wax as well as this like sort of absolute legend as she's exploring the place. It's truly like a meeting your hero kind of moment for her, given what we know about what she's going through and what she's studying and Wax is working away very much toiling like Sherlock Holmes might, <laughs> breaking down this mystery of who these folks really are and what their capabilities are and, and how he like takes these approaches to science and, you know, talks about the resources of the city versus the outskirts. There's a lot here. There's a lot to like pick through with Thursday and Wax's interaction. Yeah, there's something funny about that feeling here. It comes through so well, despite the fact that it was like these characters have met before and they've spoken and they've interacted, but it's a different setting. It's a different vibe. And Marisi has this like ball of nervousness inside of her. And despite the fact that those nerves feel unfounded because they've already interacted and they've already broken that tension. It still feels natural. Mm-hmm. The setting changes it. It's 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 Wax's home turf, so he f- feels different now. I don't know. I mean, he's I he's it. got a little bit more like power in theory, being on his true. own home turf. That's true. I I don't think that's like universal or anything. Like he's really like wielding it over top of her. But he's I I mean it, it's cliche to say that he like sounds more at home at home. You know. Yeah. So he's more himself in turn. Yeah. Just feels kind of like a natural progression, especially like Marisi is invading that. But at the same time, she's not, you know, she's not a problem. She's not. And he's also not reacting negatively. He's pro her being there in these moments, which I think is important to clarify as well. It's like he's not. Like, no, 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 shoo, shoo, I don't want you in my place. It's it's more like, oh, what do you have to bring to this equation? What can you lend to our thoughts on how we approach this? Right. Yeah. That said, we end up chatting a lot here about the groups themselves. The potential for them actually being two groups with a backer maybe looking to abduct the women and then a front group that is the violence end of the stick. But why the women? What do you think about their thoughts about the genealogy tree dating back to the Lord Mistborn and Wax's missed assumption on them all being Alamantic, given Steris's state as a non-Alamancer? What do you think about the whole kind of equation? I mean, it's been another few hundred years. So the, the lines of Alamancy have been diluted maybe to the point of being relevant or at least being way less reliable in tracking from the perspective of trying to choose somebody most likely to birth an Alamancer. So so there's that. The Lord Mistborn, which I think I talked about this before, but I'm assuming is Spook, being the most powerful 
of all like modern history makes for a very, very easy path of genealogy. It's super traceable. So I think it'd be difficult to, to really try to do what these people are doing, presumably without going directly off of the most obvious genetic line. Yeah, definitely. And I, well, to your point, I guess one of the things that I feel like is kind of posed here is that like the only line of Alamancers for the most part are derived from the Lord Mistborn and some of those powers, but not entirely, like very clearly, obviously, Ed- Edgar, the, the Ladrians in general have a continued line and, and there are some other houses that likely do, but the they're predominantly abducting from the people that they know are most related to the Lord Mistborn. Right. Yeah. It's the it's the most pure bloodline at this point. Yeah. They're they're trying to with back the as highest chance as they of, can. Yeah. It's all at this point is a math equation. It's a it's a probabilities equation. Yeah. Definitely. I realized I think it was a little bit ago, but I, I did want to make comment on the joke about Wax and Wayne when they nailed the guy in the balls when they meant to go for the eyes and it was Wayne's dagger, right? Like Wax <laughs> makes the comment about trying to throw it hit. Like there are so many good fucking jokes in here that it's so hard to talk about them all, but that one hit me in the back of my head as I'm wrapping up the episode or as we're wrapping yeah. up the episode. I just I I have to mention it cuz it was it's pretty awesome. You know, like the tension in the scene is such in which making a joke doesn't make any fucking sense from Wax's perspective as a character. But at the same time, it's so good as a moment of comic relief for him to be like, yeah, now I, I threw the dagger. I was, I was trying to get his eye. I got his balls, but then I got his eyes afterwards. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, my <laughs> God, dude. No. <laughs> what? Yeah. Brutal. But as far as the genealogy tree goes, yeah, I it's. It definitely poses questions about, like, these are the most naturally innate Alamancers, as we could possibly assume. This chapter ends post our trying to work out the P.P. Sylvia tree with the wax setting us up for next week, mentioning that Wayne is out causing a little mischief. It's a fun prospect. I'm I'm excited to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because while Wayne is is a great master of disguise, he's about as subtle as a firecracker. <laughs> yeah. No, I I could not agree more. That's <laughs> the most accurate way of putting it. Like he he is literally uh, i mean uh, i can imagine so many metaphors about talking about inadequacies and like he stretches all of my beliefs on the idea that someone could be stealthy and do something ever like we made the joke that the master (laughs) of disguise earlier half of the joke of that movie is that he fucking sucks and it is so obvious that he is who he is all the time right. like yeah i mean that's part the of entire, the genius of the movie yeah the entire joke of the movie yeah and and so in these moments like i have the same thing with wayne where it's like oh 
Oh, buddy, come on. You know, you know, right? Like you. Oh, no, you don't get it. <laughs> it feels very similar in these early moments. So I, I very much right. look forward to it. Yeah. All right. Me too. Cool. Well, anything else on this week? Anything that I skipped? I, I remembered the joke randomly that I had skipped earlier about the balls and trying to hit someone in the eye. And I, I feel like we hit a lot of points. We hit more points than we had outlined for. So we did. We definitely did. We stretched it in a bunch of different directions. So we've been recording for cool. five and a half hours. Regardless, calling next week, we are reading chapter 8 through 16, 8 through 16. So this is going to be the middle third of the book here, and we're going to we're going to tackle it. We're going to talk about it. And I'm so psyched. It's only 110 pages. It's, you know, barely more. It is less by word count than most of what we covered most weeks in the Hero of Ages. So, right. I am I'm stoked beyond that. That's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew, our producers, for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check out all of our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, all of our social media, all of our social media accounts, all in one very convenient. A special thank you, of course, to the 17th Shard and Michelle for coming on our show and talking with us about her special wedding that was immortalized instead of the story, as well as many other things. We hope you give that episode a listen because it came out late and fucked with our schedule. Thank you, Riverside, for absolutely bottoming us in a critical week. Just kidding. Kind of not, but kind of am. But thank you so much to the 17th Shard and otherwise for being so hospitable and, and coming on the show, Michelle. It was fantastic to have you. Can't wait for the next time here as pj had mentioned you can check us out words whiskey pod on twitter instagram reddit words and whiskey show at gmail.com if you want to send us any questions or any ideas or anything that you want us to talk about or any thank you notes or whatever you want you can join us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey we're gonna have a couple of new things coming out over the next month or so relating to the patreon and some stretch goals that we have and that we want to accomplish you can check out our t-shirts on T Public. You can follow that link inside of the links, as PJ had mentioned, with all of our other show notes inside of the notes. You can find it also at www.wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash links. That said, this is probably one of the last weeks that we have t-shirts on T Public. We're going to be converting to a little bit of a different service and a self-hosted thing here pretty quick in addition to some other small changes that you might see. If you want to hear more about changes, check out our Devil's Cut this week relating to changes. The only way you can listen to that is PJ on Patreon. Patreon.com slash words and whiskey. Give it a listen. Other than that, leave all of your favorite shows a five-star review. I swear to God, if you don't, Aaron from Hallerpod will come for you. And she she listens to me, folks, like uh, in a shocking change She's of events. Scary. So like also, yeah, terrifying, frightening. <laughs> You'll leave a couple of months before like she comes on. And she's threatening you. you. You'd better take these months where I'm threatening you into consideration as a positive change, because it's only going to get worse from here, folks. Like 
I'm the benevolent dictator. Chilling. Just the prospect is chilling. <laughs> All right. With that, we'll see you next week talking about chapters eight through sixteen. See you then. Boy.